since the last episode of the Quantum Leap podcast premiered January 19th, 2016, a series of disasters has befallen the members of the crew. We brazenly, and some believe mistakenly, laughed in the face of the boogie B-Man curse. In the intervening nine months, a series of unfortunate events followed that made it almost impossible to finish an episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. What follows is a compilation of many pieces of found and reconstructed audio. Our staff scoured terabytes of Dropbox files to make an approximation of what was intended to be the 36th episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, Miss Deep South. Blame it on an earthquake, a hurricane, real life, or you can just blame the boogie. Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 36, Miss Deep South. I'm a beauty queen. Your name is Darlene Monty, and you earned your way into the Miss Deep South pageant by oh, becoming Miss Sugar Bell. That's nice. That's it now. Step and glide and step and glide and glide and... Have you ever done any print or runway work? Modeling? Oh, I wish. Careful. What you wish for, you just might get. Now, you know what sells in Hollywood today? Sex appeal. <laughs> and honey, you got it. But you're going to have to help me out. Do you know what I mean? You, you want me to take my clothes off, don't you? Connie's the reason I'm here. Well, we don't have the details yet. She's not going to win, is she? She's not going to be around to win. What do you mean? Well, according to Ziggy, she doesn't even finish the contest. So there must be something terrible happens between now and tomorrow night because she disappears and no one ever sees her again. Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. Today we are talking about Miss Deep South, Sam in a dress in a beauty pageant. With lots of makeup on. <laughs> and uh, we have a great show for you today. We have the guy who played the sleazy photographer, Clint Beaumont, David Allen Brooks. And we also have the woman who played Peg Myers, the pageant director, Nancy Stafford. So I'm excited for you to hear that. Heather, first impressions of Miss Deep South. I always think of what Deborah Pratt said every time there's an episode of Sam as a woman, where she said he does not make a very pretty woman. Like, didn't he say a good look or a good looking 
woman, something like that. Uh, he is not a handsome woman. Yeah. I think was maybe something like the quote. Uh, speak for yourself. I don't know. He's pretty attractive in a dress to me, but maybe that says more about me than it does about uh, him in a dress. <laughs> it's one thing to have him in a dress, but there's so much makeup in this episode. The bright lipstick. And it was just, it's so funny because he's in like these dramatic scenes with all of this makeup on his face. And, but it, it was, it's a really good episode and it shows his, acting level because i feel like he really pulled it off in a dress and makeup he really had all those serious moments still scott is a man that can pull off anything yeah and look good doing it (laughs) so what was this episode about heather it was written by tommy thompson and directed by christopher t welch and it originally aired november 2nd 1990 In this episode, Sam leaps into June 7th, 1958, and into the life of Darlene Monty, a beauty queen on her way to the Miss Deep South contest. Sam must prevent another contestant from dropping out of the pageant while attempting to maintain third place for Darlene. That pretty much says it all. Yeah. I liked how at the beginning of the episode, uh, Scott's lipstick was a light shade of pink. So you were kind of not even sure if he was wearing lipstick. And as the episode went on, it got brighter red or deeper and darker tones of red. (laughs) uh, His makeup got more and more ghoulish, I'd say. Yeah, it was definitely pretty loud at the end, especially in his uh, costume for the show. So that's our first impressions. Uh, Let's uh, dive a little bit deeper into this episode. Overall, what do you think the message of this episode was? I have my opinion, but I want to know what you think. I, I don't know. I feel like the the message that I got at the end was that women need to stand up and or stand together and kind of like combine powers to fight evil sometimes. Because um, without Peg Myers standing up at the end, it wouldn't have been as powerful. And it wasn't easy for her because, you know, she risked... I guess exposing herself and her photos to help out, but it was a it was a bigger cause. So I think that was uh, Nancy Stafford's best part of the episode when she was confronted with her past and what had happened to her, and she had to make the decision on whether or not to let it continue or do something about it. And uh, that goes along with what I think this episode's about because at first glance you would think it's about maybe objectifying women like beauty pageants tend to do. But if you, if you watch it enough times like we did, I think I'm up to number eight. I don't know how many times I've seen it. And uh, what I got out of it was taking a stand and maybe stopping the cycle of abuse. Like she was letting it happen because it happened to her and she was afraid that if she said anything, she would be exposed. So she let it happen to someone else. Mm-hmm. But when things like this happen and you know and a lot worse things happen and people just let it go on that's a really bad thing so it takes somebody who's absolutely courageous to do the right thing and stop the cycle right so i think that was a good message i agree yeah at at first i was thinking it was going to be kind of something shallow i was i was never really one to watch beauty pageants but i and i also like the hit the little messages that they had where uh, Sam was in his pre-pageant interview and he's like, why do you need my measurements and why am I signing this thing that states that the like purity contract or <laughs> purity something? Purity contract. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that part definitely 
was kind of strange because uh, I, I personally don't think whether you have an Innie or an Audi, I, I don't think it matters <laughs> whether you're a virgin or not. I think it's yours and you can do with it whatever you want. I don't know how that applies to a beauty contest. Not at all. It was just, uh, I guess, the way things were back then in, in a male chauvinist society and where men valued purity or women to be virgins, but they were held up to a standard to where they had to be as promiscuous as possible. And if you do the math, it doesn't work out. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It, it was funny to hear also the the things that the women like were, wanted to be like the the con- the contestants when they were when they had the parasols and they were standing there saying what they wanted to be the professional secretary or the and have many babies and, and have many children and sing in the church choir like that was <laughs> big aspiration i think that's how most beauty pageants go from what i know of them i haven't watched them recently i don't think anymore i think i think now it's it's a little bit higher of a standard but still it's still pretty superficial what do you think about our society where women are judged mostly by their looks and not by their accomplishments or their intelligence or personality is and even if women are judged by their intelligence their personality what they do for a living they can have all that going for them and they're still judged on their looks i don't know if we'll ever not judge people by their looks because you can say don't judge a book by its cover, but first impressions kind of are a thing. But I feel like it's more important to look past that. And I I, I don't know if people, some people just don't have the capability of <laughs> expanding their minds to that. I, I It's a sad thing. I mean... So you're a woman, so tell me, what is it like to not only have to worry about everything there is to worry about in life, but also looking good doing it? That's such a weird thing to ask. <laughs> Well, see, I wouldn't know because I, I literally, a bar of soap and I wash my hair and I dry it with a towel and I'm handsome. I feel like women definitely dress more for other women than we do for men. Um, and I, like, I don't mean that to sound like I, I just feel like we, um, it's just a di- like a different level of like a different standard. And also... I think that it contributes to your confidence level and everything. So usually what we look good to boost our confidence. So I think it's just something that we just know how to do. It's just all wrapped up in the package. <laughs> I don't even know. I I don't know. About this walk, uh, do women really learn how to walk? Uh, how do they walk and uh, do that thing that they do that makes us turn our heads? I'm not good at walking. <laughs> so I, I think like the first note that I put down was, I don't think I could actually pull off stepping and gliding better than Scott Bakula. Um, I'm going to disagree with you on this point. I don't like when you leave, but I love watching you walk away. Well, I'm, but I feel like those are two totally different things. <laughs> I think we're talking about grace, graceful walking and I am not a graceful person at all. I, I slipped and fell and skid my knee at last weekend. So I I just I'm not a a step and glide type of girl, I guess. Step and glide, step and glide. Yeah, I was like, how do you learn how to do that cuz I don't know. I I couldn't do it. And I'm sure Scott Bakula Scott Bakula pulled it off better than I did. 
I think this uh, episode brought up a lot of things that women have to deal with, like creepy men. Yeah, men are kind of creepy. <laughs> like that move that Clint Beaumont did where he just started unbuttoning her dress. It's just I, like, what are you doing? I never knew that move existed. I guess if you're a sleazy photographer, you just kind of go for it. He's yeah. obviously done this before. <laughs> it's obviously worked for him before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at Al and his ways. He's obviously, he's all sorts of creepy in his, I mean, he's obviously smooth about it, but. We love Al, but he's, I know. he's also a creeper. He is. How is he different than Clint Beaumont, other than the fact that Clint can actually touch the women? Because Clint is using those photos to exploit those women. I don't know. That's another thing about this episode. When you compare it to today's times, this episode is being recorded in 2016 CE. So right now there's this thing. And uh, just for example, let's say Kim Kardashian or a million other girls, they take their own nude photos and put them up online and say, you know, I'm beautiful. Look at me. And that's so much different than what happened in this episode where nudity was more of a taboo and having nude photos of yourself could ruin your career when now if you have a sex tape you're famous for being famous i still feel like if your sex tape gets released you're still kind of sleazy like i feel like you're famous you're famous but not in a good light like people aren't proud of you when your sex tape gets released now the kim kardashian naked selfie thing a lot of people were like go you that you're comfortable with your body but and the message that also was portrayed is that it was her permission her picture and her choice to post it online was it necessary for her to post a naked selfie of herself on social media i don't know but it's not really any of my business i guess like that's that's how i view it now if someone took my photo without my permission and posted it online i feel like that's completely different than if i took my own photo and did with it what I wanted. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the difference, what the person is comfortable with. Because when you actually think about it scientifically, skin is skin. So it really doesn't matter technically, but it's what people think about it. Like a hundred years ago, if you showed a little ankle, you were a hussy. Well, right. Times have definitely changed. <laughs> so in the 50s, nude photos in a, on a garage wall could ruin your life, I guess. But now if you're confident enough and you want to show your body, there's really no social taboo with that. And it's not as big a deal. But that's has all to do with being comfortable of you showing yourself or somebody taking advantage of you and tricking you into doing it when you don't want to. Because if you don't want to, that's you're right also. Right. As a kid, I remember those calendars in garages. <laughs> uh, there was uh, in the town I grew up in, Farmingdale, New Jersey, there was one shop that fixed all the cars in town. And I would love walking by it every day on the way home from school and kind of peeking in the window and wait, couldn't wait till the month change just to see a new picture. But that was a thing back then. I don't think you could do that now. I think there'd be sexual harassment suits from other employees if you did that. Possibly. It probably depends on where you work. Yeah. But I'm sure HR would, at most places, would not be okay with that. Yeah, it would be like, yeah, it's right in the manual. You can't do that. But also, you don't need a calendar anymore. I mean, your phone. You're, right. you're two seconds away from anything you want to see in the world, ever. Right. So, uh, different times. How would have that situation played out if that was to happen today? If so Was someone taking photos of someone else? Right. I feel like it would still be the same thing. Like, 
they w- he would get sued though because it would be leaked online and he would get sued. Almost like with the Jennifer Lawrence thing, where uh, those were her personal private pictures and somebody stole them from her and put them online. Well, right. So and it didn't. Aaron Andrews have a case recently. Someone like yeah, that was snuck a, photos. It was a video through a peephole in a hotel or something. Yeah. So I'm glad that these uh, women are standing up for their rights and saying no, you don't have the right to do that. It's my choice. Right. Yes, it's good. And hopefully beauty pageants have gotten a little bit better than asking for purity contracts and measurements. They probably still ask for measurements, though. Maybe. Uh, just for the uh, costuming. Uh-huh. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I, I like that part where Sam was going to say the size of a woman's breasts, but then he changed it to body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that, that doesn't matter. Just the whole idea of beauty pageants just strike me wrong. I don't know why. And it's weird because I love beautiful women. I love looking at women. I, I appreciate their beauty. But it's it just superficial. It's superficial. It just seems wrong to put them on parade and like 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 a almost like a dog show. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't seem right. Now, if they choose to do that and that's what they're into, I think they have the right to do it. But it's just I, I don't know where I stand on beauty pageants is what I'm saying. I feel like the names also of the Miss Sugar Bell and Miss Corn Muffin. I feel like it's so degrading. (laughs) Like, you won Miss Corn Muffin. Is it weird that that, every time I heard that, it made me hungry for a corn muffin? Corn muffins are pretty awesome. But I just feel like I wouldn't want to be Miss Corn Muffin. I don't know. But see, the other thing it does is they get prize money and scholarships for school right right so i can understand why they do it but almost that to me that almost makes it worse because they're doing something that maybe is icky to them and they don't agree with but they do it to better their life well they're getting paid because they're pretty so i don't know i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) like like how how bad can you feel for women that are just so beautiful that people give them things yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's like a pity factor there. I don't know. There's there's a big gray area for me when it comes to beauty pageants. And I still don't know where I stand. I just know I don't watch them. Yeah. I, I mean, I heard about the Steve Harvey snafu, but that's I didn't even watch it. I just know that it existed. The, the things I know, like uh, this might have been ripped from the headlines. I'm not sure. I remember back then there was a maybe Miss USA, Miss America. I don't know if there's a difference. Her nude photos came out in Playboy and then she was disqualified and lost her crown and someone else had to oh, take wow. over from it. So maybe it actually was inspired by a true life thing. I don't know. Hmm. All of this to me relates to, I mean, not directly, but it, it reminds me of the Kesha thing that's going on right now with her being like blackmailed into dropping rape allegations and all that stuff. Like it, I feel like our society still hasn't come far enough. Oh, not at all. Not at all. It's better, but not much. Yeah. It's superficially better in individual cases. But I think as, uh, at least it's not like you were asking to be raped. Like at least I think we've at <laughs> least just, we've crossed that line where it's no longer like we've gotten that far. Yeah, you, I'm de- you shouldn't I'm, have worn that skirt de- and you wouldn't have gotten raped. I'm definitely on Team Kesha on that one. I mean, the the guy didn't get fired for how long? He's still like it's still. A I thing. think they finally let him go, didn't they? She, I know she put on Twitter the other day something about they would have let her drop her contract if she dropped the rape allegations. Yeah, so uh, not a fan of Sony at the moment. Yeah. 
So, but I, I, it hasn't been resolved yet, like her, her whole case and whatever. But it's crazy, like when you think of, and and we we often talk about this when it's when it's something morally, when it's a moral episode, something like this that you're like, well, it aired in 1990, and now things are different, but yet at the same time, not that different because people are still. Take, stealing photos, taking pictures of videos, whatever, of women and releasing them without their permission. And though they're getting a little bit more justice for it now, it's still a thing that shouldn't be. Well, this doesn't only happen to women. I mean, look at what happened to Terry Bollea, uh, Hulk Hogan from WWE. He was uh, filmed on a sex tape without his knowledge and it went up on Gawker.com and uh, he successfully sued them for millions of dollars in one. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's happening all the time, really. Not in the sex tape <laughs> news feed, I guess. <laughs> I don't keep up on those. No, that's not one of your search terms? No. <laughs> no. M- more of uh, recipes and stuff, right? Mm-hmm, and crochet too. patterns, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I lead a very exciting <laughs> life. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it just uh, it's it's just about being taken advantage of by people in positions of power and people that are brave enough to stand up to it and make that change. So I think the whole message of this episode still applies to present day. So I, I think just from a standpoint of that, it's stands the test of time. It's very valid of it's it's a valid episode and very well written by uh, our friend Tommy Thompson. Now, with all that stuff out of the way, which is horrible stuff, but, you know, finally, it it turned out okay for everyone. But with all that out of the way, it was also a fun episode besides that, just because Scott was in a dress and a bikini and heels and makeup and the funny situations that... Hair (laughs) pieces. Fluffy hair and earrings. Yeah, can we talk about that? Why did he have feathered female hair-ish when he leaped into Darlene? He shouldn't have. He should have had his normal hair. Yeah, but they, it's just to polish the whole look. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Well, my thought is maybe he leapt into a woman before that one also, and uh, we just didn't see that leap. Now you're making it more complicated. I was trying to give him an out, you know? I was trying to let him know that... But it was a mistake, I think, because he shouldn't have... Technically, he shouldn't have feathered hair the whole time because... Well, once, once he is in the aura of a woman he has to do his hair like a woman no and that's something that i don't even like how do you do your hair when it's your hair i would say you're looking in the mirror and it's not your hair i would say you look in the mirror but like how do you do hair that's not really there if it's someone's aura how do you how do you you adjust the boobs in the bathing suit like being a girl, like, you don't just put, like, you have to adjust your stuff so it's all in the right places. Really? How do you do that when you are a male that, like, her, she looked great in the mirror, so how did he get it to look like that when she's not really there? These are the questions that haunt me at night. I don't know, like... I'm gonna guess, since I didn't know that, maybe Don they, didn't know it, well, and Scott didn't know it, no, and it's, and it's just some an oversight that it, the show is basically mostly men except for Deborah. So, and I'm sure she knew that, but but I mean, like, how do you do hair? Now Sam has short dude hair. So how does he do his long how hair? How do you 
how do you curl your hair if it's not actually there? I know he was wearing a wig in part of it. Maybe that's a thing. That and how does that happen? How how do you <laughs> how do you do the wig on the like? How do you have a clip in hairpiece when like obviously you, you can clip it in a shorter hair? I think right. But how did he end up with that when she has long hair? Oh, that's a good point. These are the things that boggle my mind. <laughs> and uh, most people would say because show. It's a TV show. <laughs> right. But, that's the but, reason. But but if we were talking about that, the show would be two minutes. Because everything is because TV show. Right. I have a question for you. Okay. Why doesn't Al say like, hey, you're sitting in a quiet room. Probably not the proper place to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. He covered his mouth. It's okay. And he talked really loud. He was stage whispering. Stage whispering. So the people so the people in the back could actually hear him. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody looked over and thought that was weird. But it's just like I feel like if I was in that situation, I would either ignore Al and like wait. I know it's just TV. I know. Or go use a payphone. Right. Something. something. Yeah. But like covering your mouth. I don't know. I don't know. That's what the wrestlers do a lot of times. Yeah, but that, like, it was obvious. I don't know. Hmm. Especially considering only one person was talking in the room. If he was, like, <laughs> in a room with, like, tons of people talking. A bunch of mumbling thing. or something. Right. But not just a quiet room. And that whole moment where he started saying Connie's speech, I felt so bad. And it was so weird that it was, like, obviously a really crappy thing for him to do. And she, like, was so sad about it. And then he was like, I'm sorry. And she's like, it's fine. Like, it was, that was, like, the weirdest transition ever. Like, something, I don't know if there was something missing there. I really believe something was missing. Because where she said, no, it's fine, and he apologized to her, was in the elevator when their lips weren't moving. And they were getting out of the elevator, and it was... No, he said sorry before the, the like... It was just audio. So before they left that room, it was still like on her sad face when he was apologizing. And it was just like ADR or something. It was definitely put in later to bridge the scenes from, oh, my goodness, you just totally violated my trust as a friend. And now we're walking down a hallway. And Happy going to be our roommates. Right. <laughs> there was definitely something missing. And I think there was a more of that mean girl that bu they bumped into in the lobby. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was supposed to go somewhere else, too, but it didn't. Well, I mean, she did kind of give, like, evil looks at the end. But, yeah, that was another one that it was like they put that in there to make it a bit a bigger storyline. And then it just never. I honestly feel that Tommy Thompson's original script was probably amazing, but probably five to ten pages long. And they just literally cut pages and didn't. Still a good show. Oh, Still a great episode. A great episode. I'll, I'll always watch this one again and again. It was much better than Cats. <laughs> but I, I, it was it was definitely entertaining to see awkward Sam throughout the episode with the parasol and the, the twirling and swaying and the, whatever. The awkwardness and the gender role reversal is funny. I'm not sure why, but it's funny every time. A guy in a dress is funny every time. Well, and I mean, it's not just a guy in a dress. Like, it's totally made up high heels. And Scott Bakula's face, like, that just bring the the whole thing together. Did you know those red high heels that Sam was wearing in the bathing suit pictures were the same high heels from Samantha Stormer? 
I did not. And uh, this came up in one of my conversations with Jean-Pierre Dourliac, and he said he designed that red bathing suit just so Scott would have to wear those heels again. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But, but, you know, he's a trooper for this episode because... I agree. He gets told, okay, next week you're going to be in a Karma Miranda outfit wearing full makeup, playing great balls of fire on the piano on a stage. And he's like, sure, no problem. Got it. Yeah. Like, and he went to town like he does like nothing. It was so funny. He's he's like literally the guy that we all wish we could be in a dress in <laughs> lipstick. <laughs> he, he is the most manly guy in a dress and lipstick. I tell you, he really is. And that's the way he pulls it off, like that. He's still like super manly in full on makeup, hair and a dress. He walks like a man. Yeah. It's funny, every once in a while, because uh, I'm a big fan of his role as Captain Archer on Enterprise. So every once in a while, I'm like, that's Captain Archer in a dress. <laughs> I, I don't know. They should have done an episode of Enterprise like that. They should have done about three or four more seasons of Enterprise. But that's another show. <laughs> Literally another show. <laughs> or actually, some people think he leaped into Captain Archer and it's actually a continuation of Quantum Leap. Huh. Yeah, I guess so. that's an interesting fan. It reminds me of the episode of Enterprise that Dean Stockwell guest stars on. It's a good watch, but you're not there yet. No, not there Got yet. Got a little ways to go. So I have a question for you. I may have an answer. I may be wrong about this, but wasn't Al infatuated with Sam the last time that he was a woman, yet this time he sees him as a man? amazingly good catch heather <laughs> uh, i was wondering if you were going to catch on to that uh this has been a uh, very strong point that uh, hayden makes repeatedly and it's uh he's, he tries to make an in-universe explanation for it that the project quantum leap understood that he was way too distracted when sam leaped into samantha and uh so they tweaked the program so now he sees sam and not the aura but I think they were just going for the joke there and forgot what rules they had it's established. It's not a running gag anymore. No, but because uh, I would have made a different episode. Yeah, because I was like, he's a beauty queen now. Right. And he's still, and he's not, he didn't even kind of look at Sam like that. He wasn't even like, wow, you got a good body going on. He wasn't looking at Darlene at all, only Connie. Well, he was definitely Sam to Al. Like Al saw Sam. An address. So the rules have changed. Or just for this episode. No, I think uh, going forward, it's it's going to be like that. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> it's like you've seen this show before. <laughs> Almost. Who else did Al like in this episode? The elevator girl. I'm pretty sure Al liked all the women. Yeah. All of the women. And again, I, I share his uh, affinity for the female form, but I guess he can be rude about it, if that's the right term, because nobody else can see and he knows it gets under Sam's skin. Uh, I feel like skin. he's like that anyway. Anyway. Like, I don't think he's ever, like, shy about that. That's true. I don't know. I just, that's just the way he is, I think. But he just, I don't know. It's good that Darlene was tall. <laughs> right? She was a tall woman. I, yeah. The same height as uh, Scott Bakula, probably. But uh, that worked out for outfits and, and mirrors and things like that. Well, that's something that I... Like, didn't understand the last time he was a woman, but because, I don't know, because how could he fit his rib cage into her clothes? I don't understand. Same thing with the 
how do you style hair you don't have? Maybe size is a consideration when who or whatever is sleeping Sam into a certain time to save the day. God time fate or whatever picks the closest person that'll fit the size of him. Maybe. There's still no way that his <laughs> rib cage fit into her clothes. Like, N- not unless she was a very broad. And she wasn't. No, that's another thing. Uh, did you feel weird when he was changing his clothes into the robe and they were showing his breasts? I was like, I, I, he's not wearing a shirt. I feel like I. That's yeah. I feel like I've thought that the last time that there was a woman episode. Too, Another but... mother when his shirt got ripped open. Yeah. Right. I was say, I- I'm pretty sure I brought that point up at one point or another. I don't know why, because it's just him without a shirt, which I think every episode is him without a shirt. But since he was dressed like a woman, I was like, this is kind of awkward. Like, like I would feel weird if I watched it with my mom or something. Free the nipple. That's true. Free the nipple. So, (laughs) okay. So it's okay. Nipples. Most everyone has one. (laughs) Most everyone. Yeah. Most everyone. Just in case. Well, mastectomies. Sad face. (laughs) I was like, it was like, I was thinking Kyle XY and like everybody has a belly button except Kyle XY. Most everyone. That's where my brain went with that. No spoilers. I've never seen the end of that show. I I don't think I have either. I just know he didn't have a belly button. I saw a couple weird things in this episode. Did you notice the lobby poster for Miss Deep South? There was a like a burgundy lobby poster and it looked almost exactly like the poster for another Tommy Thompson episode. Leaping in without a net. Yeah. So I don't know if like the prop master just has an affinity for doing that kind of poster. That might be something to watch out for the rest of the series. My two favorite parts in this episode was one, the physical comedy, I guess we'll call it. When Sam was trying to sit down and Al says, you know, sit down, Sam, sit down. And he sits down with the big hoop dress and he's <laughs> the hoop's just up in the air. It's like a hula hoop in a dress. Maybe you should stand up. Yeah, that was funny. I, I got a really good kick out of that. That was a nice beat that they took the time to do that. And it was just funny for the sake of being funny. Yes. And my absolute favorite part of this episode is when Sam and Al were singing and dancing on stage together. I was like, I love this. That was really good. I think my favorite part was the fight scene where he's like, oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Oh, watch your head. Sorry. Sorry. That was hilarious. And he had it coming. The guy had it coming. Is it weird that like he... I don't know. He was just such a creeper that you were so happy that he was like dangling out the window. Like I would have been so happy if he just dropped him. That was really the actor. That wasn't a stuntman. Wow. That's crazy. Commitment. Yeah. That's what that is. That's acting right there. And trusting Scott Bakula to not drop you out of a window. (laughs) (laughs) But that was, that was very funny and just like apologizing to someone as you're beating them up. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And oh, sorry, I didn't see. Oh, is that your foot? Oh, sorry, I didn't see you. Playing it all off like like it's uh, an accident when it's obviously yeah. not. And the topper to that was like, pulling him back in the window and he <laughs> just knocks his head on the window. Oh, watch your head. <laughs> but like he does it twice on the way out and then once back. Uh, on the yeah, you awesome. know, I can't condone physical violence, but it was just funny. That I feel like it was deserved at that point. He, he was a creeper. He had it coming. Yeah. Final thoughts on this episode, Heather. Miss Deep South, did it live up to all the hype? I think everybody's getting good with the not hyping up episodes. Oh, that's good. Um, But it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Because I, like, 
I thought it was going to be something superficial and it turned out to be an, an actual like moral lesson or an issue that I could actually get behind. So that was uh, that was really nice. Great actors, great script. I love this episode. Even though I feel uncomfortable and dirty every time that whole scene happens when... It's because you're a creeper, too. Is that it? Yeah. I'm not sure, because... Because I don't feel that way. You don't? Maybe it's because I'm a guy? Because I'm like, that's not nice to take advantage of her. Obviously, she's not into it. But also, I'm thinking, wow, her clothes are coming off. This is interesting. Yep, you're a creeper. Ah, now I'm sad. Yeah. So, there it is. I mean... Maybe I have some things I need to work on. Maybe you do. Maybe this episode was written for people like me. Oh, my gosh. Moral lessons are for you. Yes. I can't say I never owned a Polaroid, but that's another show. (laughs) That nobody wants to hear. (laughs) Oh, man. Speaking of Clint Beaumont and how creepy he is, I think we should hear from the actor who played him, David Allen Brooks. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. David Allen Brooks has been a professional actor for over 30 years. He has to his credit over 26 films, including The Doors, The Kindred, and most famously, appearing with the multi-academy award-winning Tom Hanks in Castaway. As well as having many commercials on his resume, Brooks has also appeared in numerous television series, including recurring roles in The Young and the Restless, ER, and Crusade, and guest roles in Justice, Numbers, CSI Miami, Melrose Place, JAG, and as two separate characters in Walker, Texas Ranger. He is a member in good standing of the renowned Actors Studio in New York City and has acted in the Broadway version of The Normal Heart and had lead roles in the off-Broadway stage shows Lord Byron, Chekhov Project, Panhandle, Basket Case, and Orphan Child. Before becoming an actor, he taught school on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona, moving on to teach in private and public schools in California. He then moved to New York City, where he trained and lived as a successful actor for over 17 years. His work has taken him throughout the world. Brooks is also a certified professional life coach. In truth, most people don't know what they want, so his purpose as a coach is to bring light to what the client authentically wants in their life and to identify the obstacles in their way. Curiosity and challenge are the main tools of this process. The result is more aliveness, whatever the client's destination. Once a person has uncovered some clarity on what they really want, not what they should want, a course of action usually reveals itself. Leapers will know David Allen Brooks best for his guest role in Quantum Leap as Clint Beaumont, the shady photographer of the Miss Deep South beauty pageant. David has been more than happy to join us on the Quantum Leap podcast to talk about his experience filming Quantum Leap and his career. So now please enjoy Albie's conversation with David Allen Brooks. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Brooks, for joining me today on the Quantum Leap podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. This is an episode that I really enjoy watching from Quantum Leap. It's uh, you were Clint Beaumont in Miss Deep South. And I think a lot of people remember this episode simply because uh, Scott is in a dress. And uh, it's, yeah, he looked pretty funny <laughs> with that little princess crown. Like a tiara or something. Tiara, that's what it is, yeah. Of course, you play Clint Beaumont, the creepy photographer guy. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got the part and also what you remember from the filming of this episode? 
I don't remember much about the audition process. I do know that it, it called for a, a Southern accent. And so I definitely had to play with that one. And that it seems to be that when you start talking with an accent, there's a physicality that kind of comes with it. So that sort of took itself over. And um, because of the subtext of this guy, you know, wanting to get naked pictures, I think that was the, the theme of it. He was definitely kind of had a dark side to him. So that kind of built itself in. And um, that was the auditioning process. And I, I guess I did okay because they, they wanted me to do it. But what I remember about the the production itself is relatively limited. But I remember we shot it in this huge old hotel that was basically abandoned. I think they were trying to sell it. The old Beverly Hills Hilton, or I'm not sure the name of it, but it was huge. And it was definitely the center of Hollywood back in the thirties, I think, and quite a grand place. And, um, so we were setting up in there and, and I remember having to deal with this old time camera. And when you ejected the the bulb, you had to kind of catch it. And <laughs> so it was sort of like take the picture and in order you have to take another picture, you had to put another bulb in. And so playing around with that mechanical stuff was, was a lovely kind of period piece task. And I remember Heather McAdam um, as a young girl was so lovely and appropriate for that piece. She was so innocent and wide-eyed. It was a great um, casting choice. And especially, I remember seeing the two of them, um, Scott and her together, and he was wearing his tiara. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, yeah, this big, strong, yeah masculine guy in a tiara. He was this diminutive, beautiful, young, blonde girl. And, um, yeah, I remember it was hot and it was very much the period piece and that was fun playing in in the period. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that scene that it's really hard to forget in the episode is where you're trying to convince or seduce Connie, Heather McAdams' character, into taking her clothes off so you could take your character could take photos of her nude. What was that like? Was it like a closed set? And uh, I'd like to just compliment you guys because the acting in that scene is so good. You really just feel the, I don't know, like sleaze, creepiness, violation kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think it was a closed set. I think there was some discretion, you know, of who was around and what was going on. But yeah, I do remember that that was, it was kind of <laughs> private and somewhat challenging in the sense that it was really kind of a, an intimate moment. And it was also this guy is, you know, he's got his agenda and apparently he's done it before. So I, I tried to play that out, that this is no conscience, no problem, no worry. You know, this is just a seducer. And uh, so... Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what I remember about it now. What about uh, working with Scott and kind of like the fighting stunt scene, hanging out the window and all that stuff? Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a first to be upside down in a window two floors up. 
I hope I didn't take a, a job away from any stuntmen, but uh, they asked me if I'd do it, and I said, "Yeah, you know, you talk to this the stunt coordinator and get me set up right. I'll uh, I'll take a look at it." And going out that window was was interesting because you really are depending on other people's craft. They got to know what they're doing. I I certainly checked the ropes, but being upside down like that was. Yeah, and we shot it pretty fast, and Scott's just a pro and a very generous guy. You know, he was he was very supportive, and um, yeah, I was the bad guy, and he was a good guy, and it was fun. Do you, do you enjoy playing the bad guy? I do. I've played both, and it feels like the bad guys are a little easier in a way because they've got more of an edge and more color to them so that you can kind of get behind it and maybe a little bit more complication and depth. Sometimes the good guy has to be just so kind of straightforward and cleaned out and you just get the point. But with a bad guy, you can kind of go around the bush a little bit and be in some of the shadow of yourself. And that's interesting. At least I find it interesting. Uh, yeah, I agree. Could you tell me a little bit about how you started in acting? Yeah, it was kind of a mistake. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, I'd always had this feeling in college and after, because I was, I guess about seven or eight years after college. It wasn't until then that I even started to try to get a job and, and get involved with things. I was out traveling and living on the Navajo Reservation and teaching the Indians and riding the rodeo and doing my adventure game. And um, it all turned out, I really had no interest in being an actor because I, I really felt like, why fake it when you can go do it? And um sounds kind of arrogant now, but that's how I felt about it. And as it turned out, I was, um, I was going through um, chapter 11 with a book company that I represented in New York. And that's chapter 11 is um, bankruptcy. And so I was back there helping them go through that process. I had been selling books for them on the road. And I was on the streets in New York. And long story short, um, I was packing up my stuff to go home after being there for a month or so. And I needed a new suitcase, and so I went out and was going to buy a new suitcase. And I, I met this older, beautiful woman, and she was just interesting. And we just were talking, and she asked me if I was interested in being a model. And I went, a model? Like people paint you, and you have to be <laughs> naked and things like that. <laughs> she laughed, and um, she said no, and so I didn't pay much attention to it, but. Eventually, I had nothing else to do, and modeling was not what it is today. It was basically sort of, um, really? You're a male model? <laughs> it wasn't something to be proud of in my circles, and most of my friends were executives and going on to be serious people. And That opened up a whole world to me. Um, and I lived in Europe for uh, a year, I lived in Paris, and came back to New York and got a, a connection with acting um, that was um, 
kind of a vague connection, but he asked me to come in and audition for him after he'd seen some of the things that I'd done. And I got involved with this movie, um, American Success. That was my first film, and thank goodness it didn't have any dialogue. <laughs> um, I was just a physical presence, all dressed up as a, a German um, playboy, I guess is really who he was. And Jeff Bridges had to kind of copy my walk and my actions in order to continue the movie. And it was a, it was a great fun experience, but I realized I had no idea what I was doing. If I had to speak, I would have been in trouble. So I started taking acting and I took to it. I liked it. Jeff was telling me in a, I remember this, we were in a, the back of this old trailer, um, smoking and talking and, and he said, yeah, if you're really interested in learning acting, you got to go to New York. And I was just settling in, in L.A. with an agent and a manager. And it was like, I was amazed that I was going that far, that well. And I realized that I was going to go to New York. When he said that, it was just like, yeah, I'd like to do this for real. So much to the disappointment of the people that I've been working with, um, I took off to New York and ended up spending 19 years there uh, doing off-Broadway and everything an actor does. You just you, you do what you can. You do commercials and, and all the rest of it. So that's how it started. And um, it's been a good run. I'm, I'm grateful. That's awesome. IMDb says you were in The Doors as a roadie? Oh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit of uh, a fan of Meg Ryan. Some people say it's an unhealthy ob- obsession. So maybe anything you tell me about the movie, I'd I'd love to hear. Sure, um, she's classy, beautiful lady. Um, long story short, it was um, Oliver Stone, and I was in New York, and I'd just gotten into the actor's studio, and I'd just gotten this job with Mr. Stone, and it was like a really big deal because I'd written this little monologue instead of doing the the scene that they'd given me for a, an audition because it was just so little and it was stupid and I just thought, no, I'm just going to do this thing. And so I did it and I did this monologue and he, he liked it and I got this role that was the the band manager and it was really really a great role and I did a lot of research and basically research the doors and this character and all the rest of it. And <laughs> as it turns out, um, was doing okay with it. Had to grow a big beard and was living in New York, moved out to LA um, afterwards, but came out to do the movie and uh, was in the, about the second week of the film. And uh, we did all these crazy, um, he flew us out to LA some of the actors from New York to do a rehearsal um, with everybody. And we were in this big room down in Santa Monica, um, big, huge kind of a building. And we were just improvising. And it was like really free form. And it was really fun after all the discipline of 
theater and how you're, you know, you're really on the line for theater. This was sort of like really open it up and see what you come up with for these characters. And uh, that was great. But it was about two weeks into the film, um, Mr. Stone came to me and said, um, Billy Idol, who is cast as one of the other characters in the film, um, has broken his leg on a motorcycle accident. And we're going to have to shift the roles around a little bit. So you're going to be playing something a little different. And uh hope you're okay with that. And so the, the role changed. And long story short, at the end of things, after a long shoot, and there were six of us, I think, that went to the opening and basically he'd recut the movie so much that we were not in it. And it was like a huge blow. It was, we were so disappointed because it was really a fun um, piece of work. So that's the doors. And the Meg Ryan story was, I we were up in, where were we? We were somewhere in San Francisco shooting something. And there was a, a building and I went downstairs and basically sometimes you just find your own cubby hole and there was this room and so I went in and set up as the dressing room and, and then Meg came in with her um, assistant or somebody else and said, boy, this is really a good room. You've got a good <laughs> dressing room. And I said, well, uh, yeah, uh, would you like it? You know, because you're going to be needing it more than I am. And so she got the dressing room that I got to first. That's my big <laughs> Meg Ryan story. Uh, very gracious of you. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, she's a classy lady. Awesome. One film you were in that I think everybody has seen is uh, Castaway. You're in a bathrobe yeah. and a cowboy hat. Tell me a little bit about that. That was fun. That was uh, just a little little shot. You know, you see all these great actors that you've been seeing on stage and in movies, and all of a sudden you're in the audition room with them, and you've got like five sentences, one page, and it's just like, oh, man, it's one of those days, you know. But as it turned out, it was a fun role in that I had to do a, a Russian accent, and uh, again, I improvised something. I should remember to have done that more. <laughs> but, mm had a Russian accent and was talking like a Texan with a Russian accent. So <laughs> that was fun to play with. And the thing I remember the most about it was uh, it was down there in the lots in MGM um, or Warner Brothers. And it was shot early in the morning. One morning we we all got down there and we were standing in the, in this street, this fake street, um, with Brooklyn looking buildings and kind of New York looking feel. And, um, we're going to be standing up in this doorway to receive the package. And I had this beautiful model, um, who I actually think was Russian, mm. who was going to be my girlfriend at the time standing there with me. And then they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Good. Um, go rehearse and so we went off and played around with it for a while and then we saw them spraying snow all over the street and 
I'll be darned if it wasn't like this place, this this set in kind of a summery early morning in L.A. turned into a cold Russian morning. It was just amazing with all this snow all over the place. And we rehearsed this for about a half a day with different elements to it. And it was great direction and it was really fun. I didn't see Tom Hanks at all. I didn't work with him, but coming out with this Russian girl next to me and um, welcoming the package with the postman and the Russian accent and all that, that was, that was great. But all the rest of it we did, that was cut too. So it was just a little shot on the doorway boom, 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 and then it was over. So it's another one of those things where you go, wow, where did all that work go that we were going to put up? So that's just part of the deal. That's the way way it rolls. Yeah, they got to keep trimming it for time until they get it down to the time that they have allowed for them, so. Yeah, I think successful movies, they, they pare down everything. I mean, everything that doesn't, relate directly to moving the plot along so it gets pretty um pretty brutal with a scalpel yeah it's that whole if if we don't need it we don't need it kind of thing yep yeah but i I had no idea that was fake snow that that's really cool yeah that was you know it was just this big spray machine blowing this whole street up you know but it was it was definitely one of those lovely moments where this hollywood magic in that every place is the same place you know Mm. like here we are and it looks like russia and might as well be you know Mm. so yeah there wasn't that many other people in the movie besides tom hanks and a few others so that's pretty cool yeah yeah it was fun one thing i definitely have to ask you about because i'm sure there's a big crossover audience between Quantum Leap and the TV show you're in that was based in the Babylon 5 universe called Crusade. Could you tell me about yeah. that? That was um, like a big deal to me because it was like it was my first long, long-term series that I was really interested in. And I was never a sci-fi guy, but once I got into this, I kind of saw the, I saw the writing and Straczynski was, He's an amazing writer. Joe is a producer as well. And just the the parameters of acting change when you get into sci-fi because you're, you're talking about time warps and you're talking about space and you're, it just changes things. And I, I kind of enjoyed that. It's not like just a cop show where you're running the same numbers and murders and bad guys and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not such a tight kind of parameter. But they were uh, they were good characters, and the character I played as I, I started developing the character more and more, I saw how the rigidity of this character was was really he was almost humorous. He was such a narcissist, and he was brilliant. So I had to I had to really work hard to be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the things I did was put string on my shoulders so that I could pull my shoulders back because he had posture because he was kind of an arrogant son of a gun. And so the posturing was different. And and I remembered that. And it was, I guess it was just being on set and doing the same character for week after week was, that was 
fun and it was it was a lot of work it was scary sometimes coming in with long speeches that had some scientific stuff in them to get those right so that was like i remember going to work nervous nervously in the mornings early sometimes going man hope i can get this day out well without screwing the the, the memorization up too much how, how do you remember stuff like that when a lot of it to most people would sound like gibberish oh uh, i'm i'm pretty terrible at it that was probably one of the worst things i did as an actor as far as my technique goes <laughs> <laughs> but i i got through it you know you sometimes i remember looking in one place i was walking down a street full of aliens and all kinds of party scenes. It was a street like in Hong Kong. It was like something like from Star Wars. It was bizarre. And I was walking with one of my partners in crime there and she was talking to me. And I remember I couldn't get this one phrase. And I looked up at the beam that was up in the sound studio. And I saw the words up on the sound studio beam. And so the next time we did it, I just would look up there because it's about the same place as you choreographed it and I looked up and I remembered it because I could look up at the beam. I, I thought, wow, I'll have to remember that. So that saved me that day. I'm going to have to watch that again. Being in a sci-fi show like that, uh, people say sci-fi fans are very um, loyal and stuff. Do you get a lot of people that recognize you and remember you from Crusade? I don't now because I look a little different. I've um, got a little longer hair and it's a little whiter and I haven't been in the circles too much. I've actually moved up to Northern California since then. But there were people that once in a while that would come up to me in L.A. and it would say something. And it was a great run, you know, flying out to these different conventions um, and talking to the fans. And they're an intense crew, you know. And I kind of enjoyed it because they uh, – they usually had a lot of integrity about their passion about it and the creativity. And, um, you know, sometimes it can get overblown. It gets silly. It's like, oh, yeah, somebody would say, go get a life, right? Uh -huh. um, but for the most part, I enjoyed them, and I thought it was a real civil and highly intelligent crew, you know. Okay. Now I have some silly questions uh, to do with Quantum Leap again. Okay. Uh, how many of those flash bulbs did you go through? Were they like one-time use? Did you have like just cases standing by? Because I'm sure you have to film scenes a few times at least, right? Well, that's a good question because I don't know where they even got them because <laughs> they had to be they had to be antique bulbs, um, or at least who would make a? Or maybe they do it just for the movies, you know? Mm. No, I went through at least ten or twenty. Wow walking around taking pictures and practicing and doing all the rest of it so i would say yeah at least that many did you burn yourself at all on the bulbs yeah <laughs> and then you put them in your pocket and you, you burn yourself and you're putting them in your pocket because you're nervous and you're shooting something and you can't look like you're in pain i don't i can't remember <laughs> i did that but i was afraid i might do that <laughs> pocket catch on fire or something it's amazing how technology yeah, has right. changed in such a short time yeah what's their film in the camera there wasn't any there was just the bulbs and i was just clicking without any film 
did they give you any lessons on how to use it or did they make you figure it out yourself? No, they, uh, the prop master was good. You know, for that show, he'd better be good. As I recall, the kinds of things that they were doing and they were very helpful and I just had to go and practice it so that I could, you know, get it down some, cause I'm, I'm terrible with mechanical stuff. I'm not real facile with that kind of thing. So I had to kind of like work it and, uh, I got it fairly comfortably, I think, for a couple of takes that I think they used. So, Very yeah, cool. it was fun. Very cool. Is there any other memories you can share with our listeners about your time on Quantum Leap? Mm, no, it's just being in that big hotel and, and seeing all these people focusing on a, on a hot summer's afternoon, you know, and all these different people come in and you have to wait around a lot and that waiting, it's like in, um, the black ops, the guys that do, you know, the seal teams and things, or I had a friend of mine who was involved with that. He said, the hard time is the downtime. And I thought, interesting. And that goes for at least it was for me and I think a lot of people that when you're waiting, you're waiting to do a scene, you're waiting for them to set up and then the tech guys are involved over there and then the other tech guys have to wait for them to do their job. So there's a lot of waiting around and I thought, you really have to want to do this. You have to want to make the picture. There's something creative going on here. It's not factory work. And, um, that occurred to me, especially I guess when I was hanging upside down <laughs> the window. <laughs> like, yeah, this is this is good. I I went to college for this. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show, and uh, I really appreciate you letting us talk to you. Well, I appreciate your time for doing this. It's good passion. And now it's time for the interview with Nancy Stafford. An actress for over 30 years, Nancy Stafford has starred in numerous movies and TV series, including five years as Andy Griffith's law partner, Michelle, on Matlock, and three years on the Emmy Award-winning Saint Elsewhere. She starred in the ABC series Sidekicks and began her television acting career as a regular in a dual role on the NBC daytime drama The Doctors. Stafford has also guest starred on Who's the Boss, Riptide, Remington Steel, Hunter, Magnum P.I., Scarecrow and Mrs. King, You Are the Jury, Saved by the Bell the College Years, Main Floor, Frasier, Babylon 5, Baywatch, ER and The Mentalist as well as a recurring role on Judging Amy. Stafford serves on the Biola University Studio Task Force, a network of 250 entertainment industry professionals who are dedicated to investing in the next generation of writers, directors, producers, actors, and crew. She also serves on the Dove Foundation Advisory Board and is a frequent speaker and faculty member at media events and performing arts schools nationwide. 
Of course, leapers know Nancy Stafford best as Peg Myers, the director of the Miss Deep South pageant, who has a dark secret in her past. Nancy jumped at the opportunity to join us at the Quantum Leap podcast to talk about her experiences being a part of Quantum Leap, one of her favourite roles, and her extensive career. So now please enjoy Albie's conversation with Nancy Stafford. Uh, Thank you for joining me today on the Quantum Leap podcast, Nancy. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me, Albie. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, besides being a fan of yours from Quantum Leap, I'm also a fan of Matlock and different things you've been in. Uh, so it's uh, quite a treat for me to talk to you today. Well, thank you. And I'm thrilled to get to talk about Quantum Leap, which really, I think, remains my favorite guest starring role of all time. <laughs> so. You were so good in this episode. Can you tell me some of your memories <laughs> about uh, Quantum Leap and the filming and the whole process? Oh, the whole process was such a blast. Well, first of all, let me just tell you that Scott Bakula is, you know, he's such a dream. And I'm sure, I mean, all of, every, all of your other guest stars who've been on the show, on your, on your podcast, and everybody just waxes glorious, I'm sure, about Scott. He's the best. And I got to know him because they were shooting Quantum Leap at the soundstage around the corner from where we were shooting Matlock on the Universal lot. And we had Scott on our show as a guest star, and he actually played kind of a bad guy and a guy that I sort of fell for. Um, so we had a wonderful time shooting that. And then he said, okay, I've done your show now. You have to come do my show. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so when this episode of Miss Deep South happened, I actually had to run off. I talked to our producer. I had to I auditioned for it, and but I had to slip out of shooting Matlock, took a little extra long lunch hour. They were kind enough to give me some time off. And I raced over to the bungalow to audition. And um, when I got it, I was thrilled. And it's just, I loved it because it so harkens back to my Southern roots. And um, I was in the Miss America pageant. So it's like, it's like the best role you could ever play. I just loved it. Did they get the whole beauty pageant part of it right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, probably. And I'm from Florida, so that's not quite as deep south as Miss Deep South was, which I'm sure was probably Georgia or Alabama. But the, the, this particular episode, as your listeners will remember, was set in the late 50s, the late 1950s. So it was a time of real, true beauty pageants, the, the good old days. And this character I got to play was the pageant director, Peg Myers. And she had been like every iteration of every beauty queen you could ever imagine. She had a list of about 100 <laughs> titles that she had held. And she was now uh, the director of the pageant. And she still lived vicariously through the pageant. That was her identity. And... um and while it was funny and crazy, and I got to play this very over-the-top Southern beauty queen, it was also a wonderfully challenging role because um, it dealt with a pretty, a pretty, um, a little bit of a dark storyline. Um, the you know Scott leaped in and he took over the um, the girl who was one of the contestants and um, really kind of spared her from falling prey to uh, really shysty 
photographer who was trying to talk these girls into doing some nude photos. And um, so it really kind of brought to light some stuff that you know went on even back in that day in the 1950s. And um, my character of, of Peg was glossy and frothy on the outside, but she herself had experienced that as a young girl. So she she could relate to what these little young contestants were dealing with. And um, so it was really, um, it, it took a while, but her character finally came around and she became a protective mother sort of figure to these girls and spared this character from um, going down a wrong path that she wouldn't have appreciated later in life. I, I think that was one of the best moments in the episode when you find out that your character, Peg Myers, did have the same thing happen to her and she had to make a decision uh, what to do. And I think that was a really good part. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I loved it because I it got to do it was comedic and fun, but yet quite poignant. Mm-hmm. And um, I love characters that have to wrestle with doing the right thing and exposing themselves, you know, and she did it. And I'm, I'm proud of her for that. So I think it was a good episode. Great. Episode, yeah. yeah. Uh, what was it like working with Heather McAdam that played Connie Duncan? Oh, she was amazing. She was delightful sharp girl and very uh, I mean I could see even then that she just was going to have a great career I mean she she was amazing very very sharp I loved her and uh, also I really enjoyed working with the slimy photographer Dave Allen Brooks Mm. Um, he was really he really embraced that sleazeball character really well (laughs) (laughs) and um Charming on the outside and completely conniving on the inside sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I liked I liked him. And I'll tell you the funniest part, the greatest part was um was watching Scott perform his talent <laughs> <laughs> in his Carmen Miranda costume and the fruit bowl hat and playing standing up and playing great balls of fire while he's <laughs> it was just amazing. That is definitely an iconic scene. Yes. You can't unsee oh that God. once you've seen that. Um, you can't unsee this. That's so perfect. <laughs> you know, Jean-Pierre Doliac, who I know you've interviewed as well, yeah, um, awesome. he was the costumer. He's awesome. And um, he was our, he was my costumer on that walk, wow. my first season. Yeah. And so we got to be very good friends. And I love Jean-Pierre. He's so clever and so talented. And and I was really glad that he got the promotion, really, from Matlock of getting to go over to do Quantum Leap because mm-hmm. he got to do so much more. I mean, when you're crossing decades, and it just it was a costume designer's delight. And um, so he did a great job of costuming me for that episode. And also, I loved what he did with um, with Scott for the talent portion. That was so great. <laughs> Yeah, he's a very talented man, very talented man. Yes, he is. And full of stories. I'm sure he told you lots of stories. He was just <laughs> an absolute pleasure to talk to. I could have talked to him for hours. Yeah, he's the best. I'm sure our listeners would want me to ask you about uh, two big series that you did, uh, one being St. Elsewhere. Could you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. What an honor for me. Um, I was new to Los Angeles. I had started my acting career in New York um, doing a soap. And the soap ended, and I was brought out here to screen test for a pilot, um, which I did not get. But there was enough interest that I decided to move on out to California. And within just months, 
I had the incredible honor uh, of being cast in that show. Um, so I did the show for three years. It's second, third, and fourth season. And, um, oh, my gosh, it was iconic. It was ahead of its time. It was written so amazingly beautifully and powerful. I got to play with uh, Mark Harmon as my fiancé on the show. What's not to like about that? Mm. <laughs> and um, just really working with the greats, I felt like I was just uh, in class all the time. I mean, Denzel Washington was, you know, in our cast at the time, and Howie Mandel, and, uh, written by the great Bruce Paltrow, and created, and the and Mark and John Tinker. Um, it was just, it was an Emmy award-winning show that. I got to do, and I'm just so honored and pleased. It was just a blast. Yeah, it was an amazing show. And, of course, yeah. Matlock. What was it uh. like being on Matlock <laughs> and working with uh, Mr. Griffith? I loved Andy. I loved Andy. Um, it was a party every day. It was just a party. I mean, he he was amazing. Um, he set a tone on that show, you know, it, it all starts at the top and the lead character, Scott did this on quantum leap. Um, you know, another Belisario show I did called uh, Magnum PI, uh, Tom Selleck did it. Any of the great leading men or women on a show, they set a tone and Andy certainly did. And it was, it was wonderful. He was a consummate professional even though we had a party every day and it was laughter galore, he was a guy that when it was time to work, man, we, as soon as that camera rolls, you work. And he did not suffer fools well. So if you weren't prepared, a lot of times the people, you know, some folks have said, you know, he's not always easy to to work with. Well, if you know what you're doing and you're prepared and you're a professional, he's fabulous. So if, Guest stars came and they were goofing off, or they just weren't prepared, or something. He, you know, he just didn't tolerate a lot of stuff. He had a very high bar and expected everybody to kind of live up to it. And as a result, he made us all better. He made me much, much better. He made everybody he worked with better. And the thing that I'll never forget about Andy is um, when we would do that ubiquitous courtroom scene every episode of the eight days of shooting, at least two, if not two and a half days were shot in the courtroom for that huge courtroom scene. And he would do this amazing summation at the end, which was pages and pages and pages and pages of dialogue. He would do it in one take. He got a standing ovation almost every single time. As soon as they yelled cut, the entire place erupted, and he, the cast, the crew, the, the actors in the gallery playing the jurors, everybody just would jump up and give him this amazing standing ovation because he did it in one take. Um, he was just astounding. And when he and Don Knox were on the set together, oh, my gosh, um, those were the most fun days ever. Uh, Don came in and played a recurring neighbor on the show. And um, they would immediately fall into their groove when cameras weren't rolling. They would just immediately be, you know, Barney and Andy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was hysterical. And 
kept us all laughing and people would come down. It was really interesting. Uh, people would come from other sets. I know Scott and some other people used to come over from Quantum um, whenever Dawn was going to be there. They just would sit in the in the background, in the in the darkness of the rafters, kind of watching the antics going on. The uh, guys from the offices, from the big tower at Universal Studios, they, people would come on their lunch hour from the tower and just sort of watch and see what was going on. It was it was quite something. It was a bit of history. So I'm very fortunate. I got to work with an iconic TV show like Quantum Leap, and then I get to work with one of America's greatest icons, Andy Griffith. So I'm a lucky girl. <laughs> was there ever a uh, moment where it's like a pinch myself moment? I'm, I'm working with uh, Andy Griffith and Don Knox. <laughs> yeah, actually, probably a lot. Um, I was tongue-tied quite a lot, especially around Don. Um, he was so very different than his character on the Andy Griffith show. I expected this sort of befuddled, loud kind of buffoony kind of character and the brilliance. I never realized what a brilliant actor he was until I got to know him as a person. And he is genteel and quiet and was kind of quite reserved and rather shy. <laughs> and then he would get to know you a little better. He'd see Andy or he'd break into this character he was playing and he suddenly became this bug-eyed, you know, wild man. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was just great. And Andy, of course, what I loved also watching him, um, what he created on that show, all the bits that he created, you know, he, he had his hand in all the scripts. And um, so while he didn't necessarily get a, a byline as one of the writers, it was, marked with red, Andy's red pen handwriting <laughs> all throughout. So he added jokes, he added bits, he added all kinds of things that were so enriching to the characters and to the show. And it, the, the most lovely Ben Matlock bits are the ones he created, such as eating hot dogs. That was totally Andy, <laughs> just made that up one day and just said, oh, he's got to eat hot dogs. And one of the funniest um, moments was you know, once he created a bit, the shoe shine bit, or the hot dog bit, or the being cheap, he, he created the part that he was going to be cheap. And uh, I, I don't think he created the I'm going to wear the same suit every day of my life bit. But you know, it was fun to go into this wardrobe trailer. You know, all of our, if you go in the wardrobe trailer, which is a huge motorhome, and all the characters cast clothes are lined up and labeled. You know, there's Michelle, my stuff, and then there's you know, um, Clarence and stuff. And then you get to Andy and it's 18 identical gray suits <laughs> <laughs> in a row. He had like four ties and 18 identical suits. Um, but whenever Andy would have to do a bit, primarily the hot dog thing after he created it, it was, <laughs> he would always laugh and say, Oh, and he was acting this, of course he wasn't really meaning it, but, you know, he'd complain and he'd moan and he'd groan. He'd, oh, not that again. Do I have to do the hot dog? <laughs> and the Andy was a health nut that nobody necessarily knew. And so those were tofu dogs. Oh, wow. Or, I eat those or too. chicken dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, he would always moan and groan and complain for the bit that he created that had become such an affectionate <laughs> uh, tagline to who his character was. 
Yeah, Matlock's an amazing show. I discovered it in syndication, so I was able to watch it five times a week all the way through. So it was great. <laughs> so it is great, and you know what? I'm so grateful that it's still in heavy syndication. Yeah. And like you, it's finding new audiences. So people who never saw it in its first incarnation are getting a chance to see it. And I love because I I'm I'm getting tons of mail and everywhere I go and travel and speak and stuff, I I hear from young people who I mean, we're talking teenagers and twenty something who have such fond memories of the show because they either watched it with their grandparents or Andy reminds them of their granddad. Mm-hmm. And that's, I hear that a lot. Andy reminds everybody of their father or their grandfather. <laughs> yeah, it still holds up. So it's it's very much it worth checking out. Yeah, it's well, great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Besides being an amazing actress, you're also, you have so many things you do. You're a public speaker, you're a writer, a producer, and still acting, right? So, uh, yeah. So many things. Um, let's talk about uh, your books. You're, you're, an, you're an author. I've got two books. I'm working on the third. Um, I'm published through a, an imprint of Random House, which I'm thrilled with. Um, yeah, I started, I, my first career was a writer. I was actually a journalism major in college, and my first career was in journalism and public relations. So I wrote before I ever got into this business. And then um, back in the mid-90s, after Matlock ended, um, I one of the shows that I hosted, that I, I was on a series regular on a show called Main Floor, which was a, a magazine format fashion trends beauty show that I hosted for 10 years, syndicated on CBS O&O's primarily. Mm-hmm. And um, the producer of that show said, hey, and this, no, bear in mind now, you know, this is like the mid-90s. So we're talking, I mean, Albie, you were not even born probably. So this <laughs> is the mid-90s when this show went on the air and so this producer says, okay, we're going to do this new thing called a website. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it's going to be great. And then, and then he said, um, and why don't you write a column? Well, see, now they call it a blog, but back then it was a column. Mm-hmm. And why don't you call it Nancy's Notebook and just write whatever you want, write what you want. You're always talking to women about how valuable and beautiful and amazing and important they are. Why don't you talk, why don't you write Nancy's Notebook and talk about that? So I started writing Nancy's notebook on this website and people loved it. And then I got a call from the acquisitions editor at this publication, this publishing house. And he said, you got to do a book. You got to do a book. And I kept putting him off. There's a million books. We don't need another book. No, no, your voice is, you have a fresh voice. You write very differently. So finally he convinced me six months later to do a book. And then I've now done my second book and working on the third and I loved it. It got me back. This fashion trends magazine show got me back to my roots in writing, which I love. And, um, so it's a, I'm a, I'm a woman of faith. So I get to come at this idea of what real beauty is from the truth and the reality that it's not what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that makes us valuable and important. And, uh, and I get to share that message uh, all over the country as I do women's retreats and conferences. I just did one here in Orange County last weekend, and I'm off to Athens, Alabama um, in two weeks to do a women's conference there. And so I love women. I love seeing them, you know, just set free and become all that they were created to be. That's amazing. 
I like that. And uh, people can get those at uh, nancystafford.com. Is that right? That's right. You can get it at Amazon or okay. other places, but I'd love if they get it at nancystafford.com. I'd be happy to sign it for them. Okay. And there's all kinds <laughs> of other cool stuff there. I was there today. It was a really nice website. It's worth checking out. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You have uh, upcoming projects coming out. Uh, a couple movies I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I'm not ashamed. Yeah, wow. This is, um, if your listeners remember the Columbine shooting, um, this is the story of Rachel Joy Scott, who was the first girl to be shot by her fellow students at Columbine. And um, she was standing up for her faith, and um, they just shot her. And it was a it's the first time this story has been told, her story. And um, it's really from the, I haven't seen the whole movie, but the um, trailer is fantastic. And the, the production designer did an amazing job. And I'm just really looking forward. It's going to be released in April on the, um, I think it's like the, is it the 20th anniversary of Columbine? Could it be that long ago? Maybe it's the 10 year anniversary wow. of Columbine. So. Yeah, that's coming out. Um, it will be on DVD, but it will likely have also uh, a limited theatrical release. Um, not sure how much, but it'll be on DVD soon and uh, get some television play as mm. well. Sometimes those yeah. type of movies are hard to watch, but you need to watch them. You know, you're right. Um And this one in particular, I think you're very right. I think you need to watch this because it's, while it may seem like, oh gosh, why do we want to rehash Columbine? It's really filled with such hope. Um, it's a very inspirational story of this young woman and, and her friends and the transformation that took place in their lives as a result of this young gal's life. So it's, it's not a downer. It's really a, a very inspirational, hope-filled film. Very cool. Good, good cast as well, yeah. Could you tell me about Heaven Bound? I love Heaven Bound. I can't wait till this thing finally comes out. We shot it a year ago in um, Sparta, Georgia. Sparta, Tennessee. And it's a comedy. It's a Christian comedy. Hmm. We need to laugh, folks. (laughs) (laughs) There's just not enough faith comedies out there. And um, it's really a darling premise. My dear, dear friend, Tori Martin, wrote it uh, with his writing partner, Marshall Younger, he, he produced it, and he stars in it as my brother. And Tori, honestly, I want your listeners to remember the name. Tori Martin, he is going places. This guy is one of the most prolific writers I've ever known. Hugely talented. He's got all kinds of projects that are already optioned and are being shot uh, that, that he has worked on. And also as an actor. He has a whole other track as an actor. He's just one of the real big secrets that is not going to be kept a secret very much longer. But it's a it's a, a comedy that's starring Tori and myself and Michael Joyner, who's a stand-up comedian. Mm. Um, Danny Vinson, fabulous character actor, plays another very pivotal lead role. And it's really about uh, my husband and I, I'll, I'll try to make it fast, but my husband and I have it all. We've got the world. Mm-hmm. Big fat job, big house. We've got it not a care in the world. And and my husband loses his job, and um, we're in debt up to our eyeballs. And so little by little, everything starts to, you know, cars repossess, furniture repossess. <laughs> we're down to almost nothing. 
And I had to take a job at this doctor, Danny Vincent's office. And I come up with this cockamamie idea that overhearing a conversation that we can steal a half a million dollar diamond necklace Mm -hmm. from this doctor and we can get away with it and get out of all of our trouble. So as it turns out, my, my brother played by Tori Martin pops up and he's overheard the conversation. So now he has to be part Mm -hmm. of our little triumvirate of very bad criminals. So we are the absolute worst capers in the world (laughs) (laughs) and we bundle everything and we ourselves get caught. Oh. And um, so the rest of it you have to see for yourself. It's got a great message as well as just being a hoot. It's going to be fun. That sounds like a very fun movie. <laughs> that's a, that's a must watch. Okay, I'll yeah, I think so. Good, Seven Bound, and it'll all this stuff will be on my website too. NancyStafford dot com, right? Yep. Thank okay. you so much. And uh, one thing I saw on your IMDb uh, interested me: an um, anti-bullying movie called Superheroes Don't Need Capes. Yes. Um, you know, that's a tiny little movie that we did about three years ago. And um, it has had a powerful impact for a little tiny movie. It's um, the story of my dear friend, great filmmaker, Greg Robbins. It's, he wrote it and directed it and stars as my husband in it. And um, we ha- are caring for our grandson who is autistic and is a a, a handicapped child and bullied by the local kids in the neighborhood. But it is such a film of triumph of love over bullying and hatred. And our precious grandson, who plays a teenager, basically he counteracts all the bullying that comes at him by refusing not to love these kids and he just loves them into submission (laughs) and um it's just the most tender beautiful story and he becomes um he wants to run he wants to be a runner we discover he's got this amazing hidden talent to be an amazing dash you know very long distance speed speedster and um he ends up i will spoil it but he ends up becoming a hero a super truly a superhero not only to the community and the school, but by embracing the young man who had been his greatest nemesis and changing that young man's life for the better. And the cool thing about this movie um, is that we created, I didn't have anything to do with it, but the filmmaker created a companion kind of study guide to kind of go with it that is being used by schools and even prisons and youth detention centers all over. And the, um, when the movie first came out for about six months, they did assemblies in the school and they would take the lead actor who plays the bully. They do a clip of the movie and then they, they bring out the young guy that plays the bully and he'd talk about the role, but they'd also talk about how he himself as an actor, as a young man, he himself was bullied and what that felt like to him. And then they brought out the young, the guy who plays my husband, and he talked about about stuff. And then they brought, did a clip and brought out the young boy who plays our autistic grandson, who was the one who was bullied. And he brings the house down. And then he talks about what it felt like as an actor to play that role, so vulnerable, and what it was really like to be bombarded with those mean words and actions and kicks and and, and hits. 
And then he talked about how in real life, when he was a teenager, he was a bully. So it's so powerful. And these kids are in tears by the end of this assembly. It's just had a lot of impact. So I'm very proud of that little film. Sounds very inspirational. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm a fan of is Babylon 5. You were on Babylon 5. Yes, I love Babylon 5. What was that experience like? That was fun. Oh, man, that was great fun. Um, And I really had hoped it was going to become a recurring role. It was kind of looking like it could possibly be at least another episode or two. Um, I loved it. It was huge fun. Um, I got to play someone who was out in, uh, like, I was an astronaut. I was on on Mars or someplace and stuck, and I watched a pretty gruesome, horrible thing happened to um, some people there by a monster that they never got from outer space. And it was, it was really very cool. Got to wear the spacesuit, got to do all the fun stuff. So, yeah. That does sound like fun. More play than work sometimes, maybe. <laughs> yes. yes. Got to do some fun. So that was fun. Yeah. Fun. Going back to Quantum Leap, is there anything you remember of just your experience there, whether it be how the catering was or anything funny that happened during your filming or anything that happened as a result of you being on quantum leap. Um, I just remember being treated beautifully. I mean, it was, we shot at the famous uh, ambassador hotel in um, Los Angeles and it was a a very old, old, old kind of grand place in its day. And that was fun to be out on that location. I just remember, um, I loved seeing Scott in his element you know, he got to come over and be a guest star on our show, and he got to see us in our elements. But to go over there, one of the fun things for me as being a guest star on so many shows is you get to see what the culture is like. And every show has got its own feel. And, um, again, it starts from the top. And I just remember it was such a lovely, welcoming, warm, and kind environment. And I really attribute that to both Don Belisario and, and Scott. Um, but Scott is, was fun and he was joking and he was very accessible to the cast and um, all those young people, especially that, you know, in my episode, all these young girls were just, you could see their eyes. They were just like in awe. <laughs> and he was always so sweet and so kind. And, and that's really what I remember most about that experience. It was just great to see my friends. Uh, in his element, shining as brightly as he was, but also staying as humble and kind as he was. That was great. That's awesome to hear that the people you think that are nice and kind truly are. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, and I'm sure our listeners are going to really love hearing from you. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Albie. I really loved it. Attention business owners, busy executives, entrepreneurs. Is work piling up? Is your inbox overflowing? Are you stressed for time and constantly falling behind? You need a virtual assistant. You need Albert Burge. 
Albert is a seasoned and proactive professional who will handle the day-to-day details so you can focus on what's important, growing your business. Albert's comprehensive list of services include scheduling, administrative support, customer service, client invoicing, website administration, database management. Hand off all of these tasks and more to Albert, your virtual assistant. No job is too big or too small. Contact Albert Burge at albertburgeva at gmail.com. That's A-L-B-E-R-T-B-U-R-D-G-E-V-A at gmail.com. Albert has decades of experience in business administration, management, and web development. Let Albert do it so you don't have to. Don't wait. Email him at albertburgeva at gmail.com. You can't do it all, so stop trying. Stop running around in circles and start running your business with efficiency and profitability. Put yourself on the path to success. Hire a virtual assistant. Contact Albert Burge today at albertburgeva at gmail.com. That's A-L-B-E-R-T-B-U-R-D-G-E-V-A at gmail.com. Peace of mind is only an email away. Hire Albert Burge to be your virtual assistant now. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. If I had my life... On February 15th, 2016, premiering on Hulu is the original miniseries from producer J.J. Abrams, starring James Franco, based on the best-selling Stephen King novel, 112263. I'm Skipper Martin, author of the graphic novel Bizarre New World and 24-year veteran of the post-production industry. And I'm Christopher DeFilippis, creator of the radio show De Flipside, author of the Quantum Leap novel Foreknowledge, and the original time travel novella The Seeker. We all love this novel so much. In anticipation of the new series, we're very excited to bring you this limited event podcast covering both the original Stephen King book and the upcoming Hulu adaptation. During our first shows, we'll be discussing the novel in detail, and we'll be speculating on the series. Then, starting in mid-February, following the Hulu series premiere, we'll dive deep into each episode, giving our thoughts, observations, and opinions. And we will also give you the opportunity to give your feedback. We'll also be taking you behind the scenes with interviews with cast members and the production staff. So subscribe to 112263, an event podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at baronspace.com slash 112263. You shouldn't be here. You are normally next guest is Sam Beckett on NBC's uh, time travel fantasy Quantum Leap, which airs on Wednesday nights. Uh, some, some fans of the show here. There, uh, he's also starring in the movie Sibling Rivalry, which opens on October 26. Please welcome Scott Bakula. Pronouncing it right. Bacula. Bacula like Dracula. Yeah, do you get Blackula all the time? I got Blackula, Dracula, Bacula. <laughs> Pick one. <laughs> now, let's see. And in Quantum Leap, obviously, you assume other people's identities, right? Now, this season, I understand they've got you perhaps pushing the envelope a bit. You play a beauty contestant? Yeah. 
Yeah. How does this work? Well, it's 1958, and I leap in to the middle of a beauty pageant, Miss Deep South. Oh. Yeah. Miss Inbred Deep South, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so that's complete with uh, a Corman Miranda outfit. I see you wear the whole woman's... The whole thing. Uh, the bathing suit competition was kind of interesting. And you had to wear it. Really? You had to put on. Yeah. How did this start? Did your wife come home early, see you in the outfit, and you just said, uh, this is for the show? Or was this actually. I <laughs> <laughs> you know you actually. called you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, they, uh, you know, there are an equal amount of women and men out there, and they lead me into anything. So. Well, let me, I mean, as an actor, you're sitting there, and they come with you and they, with the script. And you, I mean, do you ever say. Do I really have to put the bikini on? I mean, well, it wasn't a bikini. Oh, well, well, it was a one-piece with a little red skirt and a. Oh, I like seahorse. You know, I like that look. <laughs> no, that is a good look yeah, for you. It was. It was. <laughs> Did you feel silly? I mean, when you went yeah. to the cafeteria for lunch, didn't people look? Perhaps. Yeah. Actually, the people at Universal are kind of getting used to it. But I do get a lot of whistles, and people treat me nicer. I must say. Yeah. yeah. They hold the doors for me, you know. Double your chances of getting a date. <laughs> <laughs> now, another episode, just see, well, I made a list of you. So you, okay. you, you played a beautiful secretary coping with sexual harassment. Yeah. That was the first time. The rabbi salvaging his brother's marriage. You played an elderly black man. Yes. Now, how do you do that without people saying, hey, hey, I mean, did they put, did they put, did you do like an Al Jolson gig? Or what happened here? No, on the show, I appear as myself. Right. Like in the movie, Heaven Can Wait, we always saw Warren Beatty, but he was in... Oh, the I other see. guy's body. Yeah. And we have mirror shots where you look in, when I look in a mirror, we see the real person. Oh, okay. Oh, so that way, the, that way the viewer knows what the body yeah, is. It's kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what's weird is that when I'm a woman, I don't have to shave my legs or anything, so it's, oh. it's pretty ugly. So you miss out on the fun. <laughs> and what does your wife say when she sees you in the outfit? Does she like you? As a... uh, basically, she says, I told you so. I mean, you know, women always are complaining about it's not their feet hurt. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, right. You know, they're always saying my feet hurt. It's cold, you know. And when you've been in dresses and it's cold and your feet do hurt after 16 oh, hours, believe you me. <laughs> <laughs> it is that was you a living hell. This is Donald P. Belisario, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. And that was the promo for our other Baron Space show that's been very popular lately. Really good reviews on iTunes. People seem to be digging it. It's 112263, an event podcast, all about the Hulu series, 112263. I loved that book so much, and the series was really good. The book inspired it all, and uh, a bunch of us got together at Baron Space and made an amazing podcast. And uh, the hosts over there are Skipper. And Christopher, you may have heard them from the Lee Harvey Oswald special that aired a little while ago in the feed. Uh, you haven't heard it, Heather, because that would be a spoiler. Mm, yes. But uh, yeah, those guys are doing a great job over there. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it. It's a great listen. You shake my nerves and you ride on my brain. This kind of love drives a woman insane. You broke my will. What a thrill. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Sell this world that you're mine, 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 mine. 
and everybody's favorite part of the episode, Hayden segment. It's it's called uh, it's called Quantum Deep. Oh my god! I know it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, inappropriately named Quantum Deep. Okay. Uh, hey, Leapers! This is Hayden. I'm crowning you Miss Quantum Deep South. Despite the number of times that I've watched every episode of the Quantum Leap television series, it may surprise our leapers that I've only recently started reading the Quantum Leap novels and comic books, which, by the way, I'm loving, and why I'm starting to interview the Quantum Leap authors in our novel concept segment. I have in the past stated how I enjoy the fact that some of these stories build upon the personal chronicles of characters who were introduced during the show, such as Teresa Bruckner from Another Mother, helped by Anne Haler, a pivotal character from a future episode, in Elizabeth Storm's novel Angels Unaware, and Stephanie from Goodnight Dear Heart in the comic book number nine Up Against a Stone Wall. Elizabeth Storm's novel Pulitzer also pretty much serves as the Leap Home Part 3. But I am just happy to be immersed in new Quantum Leap. All of the tales I've read so far have been very well written and make it really easy to be able to picture Sam and Al in those situations, all the while capturing their dynamic and friendship. It comes through in the writing that the authors loved the show as much as we all do and has been confirmed at least by the authors that I've interviewed so far. One of the reasons Quantum Leap has reached its cult status is due to the fact that while being extremely entertaining and heartwarming, the show incorporates concepts that are complex enough to foster thought in its viewers, delivered with enough ambiguity to promote discussion, even 25 years later. It's said that great minds think alike, and Quantum Leap fans are no exception. As such, the same sort of questions are often asked and discussed, many of which I've tried to address in these segments. So, imagine my shock when I was reading Quantum Leap comic number 12, Waiting, and throughout the story, they tried to answer some of the questions that we've been discussing since long before the beginning of the podcast. The story itself is incredibly simple, but beautiful in its simplicity. Sam leaps into a 79-year-old man who owns a service station in the desert in southeast California. His mission is also incredibly simple, to give directions to a lost traveller, something that his grumpy old host would never do. The P is illiterate, so there isn't anything to read in the house, and being in the middle of nowhere, there isn't anywhere to go or anyone to talk to. As such, Sam is thoroughly bored by the time Al shows up, and after getting the usual spiel of who he's leapt into and why he's there, to start with, as usual, they have no idea, Sam asks Al to stay and keep him company. The reason I enjoyed this story so much is because it almost entirely focused on the friendship between Sam and Elle, and through their DNM gave us a glimpse into what their relationship was like before Sam stepped into the accelerator and vanished. Their conversation gets very philosophical, which may seem odd for a pair of scientists like Sam and Elle, but realistically, all science starts out from a sense of curiosity, wondering why things are as they are, and what might happen in certain situations, and then trying to execute experiments which could back up the theories. 
In his usual conjecture about why Sam has leapt to where he is, Sam delved even further into the more philosophical question, why am I here? In other words, why is he leaping through time to fix people's problems? Oh, just a side note while I remember. Since Al is the comic relief and occasional heartstring-pulling character on the show, people are quick to dismiss his intelligence, especially when juxtaposed against a genius like Sam. But Al is also a highly intelligent and hard-working scientist. He would have to be, considering he's been involved in the Quantum Leap project since its inception and understood the vast majority of what's going on and is able to field questions by the committee and write the scientific journals explaining Sam's research in his absence. Heck, the only one who does more work at the project is Ziggy. Another reason why I love this story is because it showcased Al's intelligence, as he clearly had given a great deal of thought to what Sam is going through, and could come up with decent answers with scientific basis to most of them. On the subject of why is Sam here... Al believes it's a combination of the quantum inseparability principle, quip, where every particle in the universe affects every other particle, which means that events from the future can affect events in the past in just the same way that the past affects the future. Sam is one way that this occurs, but Sam also adds some randomness in the sense that he won't move on until everything's straightened out to Sam's satisfaction, even with Ziggy backing him up. It still boils down to Sam, as Sam's the one who created and programmed Ziggy. After Sam cools down with a bottle of original Coca-Cola, with real sugar, not fructose, and probably some cocaine for good measure, Al continues with some more of his own time travel theories, and actually touches upon the subject of paradoxes. Paradigm? Which you may recall I tried to explore in detail just two podcasts ago. According to Al... There's nothing in the laws of physics that would forbid time travel, and the theory of relativity makes it possible. But that possibility for time travel also opens up the possibility for logical paradoxes. He explains, however, that logic sometimes does not have a place in reality. Let's say you had a piece of paper. You could cut off half, and from the remaining half, cut off another half, and from the remaining quarter, cut off another half, and from the remaining eighth, cut off another half, and you could go on theoretically forever. Realistically, though, there would have to be some point where you wouldn't be able to hold onto the paper pieces anymore, and you'd need to use a laser, and eventually you'd get down to the atoms. And what disastrous effects would splitting the atom do? But let's say it actually was possible to continue halving forever, though. Even though you would end up with an infinite number of pieces, if you did add them all back up, you would get the one whole sheet of paper. Al demonstrates the irrelevance of Paradise using the same principle. He has Sam drop the bottle to the ground. Zeno's paradox states that the bottle should never actually reach the ground because it has to travel half the distance to the ground, then half again, then half again, ad infinitum. But in reality, you can always move between two points, which means the bottle does hit the ground. Sam and Al once theorized that each leap gets Sam halfway home. Sam gets a little discouraged because logically this would mean he never gets home. But Al again points out that paradoxes don't happen in reality, and thus he must someday be able to make that final step. Something else to chew on which we've theorised on this podcast and beyond, why is it that whenever Sam leaps, the clothes he is in always fit him, even when he's replaced a petite woman or a child? Al tells Sam the theory that Gushy came up with, that the leap causes a disturbance in the molecules of the clothes, making them unstable and thus malleable enough to be able to fit Sam. 
Unfortunately, the author of this comic seemed to forget that Sam usually has to change his clothes during a leap. But I would venture to add to this theory. If we remember that Sam's original quantum leap required a great deal of power from a nuclear ring, Sam's probably still radioactive. So maybe it's not the leap itself which causes the molecules to be disturbed, maybe it's just Sam. Reading this comic has left me feeling quite nostalgic, reminding me of themes, issues and questions that I've tried to address during my segment in the past. You may remember in the very first segment that I did that I spoke for a good 15 minutes on the subject of auras, where Sam's surrounded by the aura of the Lee P, and that's why everyone sees him as the Lee P. This episode, Miss Deep South, is actually the first time we get confirmation that Al is now seeing Sam as Sam. He's seeing through the aura. I'd venture to say this is because he's had so much trouble with the What Price Gloria leap. Remember how he fell in love with Sam? That they must have tweaked the neural link a little bit so that you can actually see past it. And I think it's a good thing that they did. Imagine what Al would have been like if he was seeing Sam as the beauty queen. I also touched upon the subject of blackmail even earlier, where I ventured to say that Al was probably blackmailing Weitzman. It's interesting that in this episode, it's actually more explicitly shown that Peg is being blackmailed. That's probably why she's kept Clint Beaumont on the books for so long, even though he took advantage of her. And finally, when Heather and Albie discussed the season two episode Freedom, I talked a bit about Power Rangers as they also did a time travel story, which also had Frank Salcedo play a similar role as he did in Freedom. There's also quite a surprising connection between Power Rangers and Miss Deep South. If you look closely at the Ranger suits, you'll notice that female Power Ranger suits usually have a skirt over the top of the body-hugging spandex. This is not just a fashion statement. There's actually a working reason why this is needed. Even though the female Rangers have a womanly shape, that's mostly due to padding in the right places. Nearly all of the stunts in the fight footage are performed by men. Back on the subject of Miss Deep South, during the photo shoot by the pool, every swimsuit is also extremely body-hugging. Scott Bakula would have been facing the exact same problem that the stuntmen in the Sentai show would be facing. So how'd they get around this problem? Well, Jean-Pierre Dorliac designed the swimsuit to have a skirt over it. It also fitted well with the character of Sam's host Darlene, as Darlene was portrayed as being sheltered, immature and innocent. Since we're feeling nostalgic, if there's anything that I've spoken about in the past during my Quantum Deep segments that you'd like to discuss with me, feel free to send me a message on the Facebook page or via email, or even something I haven't talked about yet. In the meantime, I'm going to enjoy all these new adventures of Sam and Al. Now, I use the word new loosely, as they've been around for 20 years. It's just my first time reading them. And I might even revisit my childhood and re-watch some Power Rangers. Who knows, maybe there are enough Quantum Ranger references to justify its own segment, like the Quantum Leap radio sightings. Wait a minute. I think there actually was a Quantum Ranger in Power Rangers. In Power Rangers Time Force, which was about, you guessed it, time travel. Oh, boy. I think my eyes just went cross-eyed. Hey, everybody. This is Tommy Thompson, writer of the episode Miss Deep South. Okay, I uh, just uh, want to talk a little bit about Miss Deep South, and I warn you, I don't know, how, I don't know how many memories are clear about that. So if I don't 
have a lot of memories, you'll forgive me because it's like it was a long time ago. Yeah, like thirty years ago, I know. So I mean, I might, I might even remember more than you do. So who knows? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent that you do. I was, I was watching the episode and uh, with Heather, and I was talking about it, and I was like, I wonder what Tommy was uh, thinking here. And uh, you know what? I'll just text him. I'll just text him. Turned into why don't why don't I call him? And then why yeah, right. why aren't you on the show? So just a couple weird things. Um, well, we'll start off with this. What is your best memory uh, and like best favorite part of Miss Deep South? And then what's what's the moment in Miss Deep South where you kind of make you cringe? Well, the um, the overwhelmingly favorite moment was when, and I'm not a guy. I wasn't one of those guys that liked to go to the set too much. You know, I mean. I might go down and look at, like, when I did my first episode about the circus, I, they built an entire circus in one of the, the uh, sound stages. So I went down and looked at that, and that was pretty cool. But otherwise, I, I pretty much stayed in the writing uh, offices most of the time. But I went down to the uh, location the day they did the uh, montage bathing suit photo shoot of Scott in the uh, bathing suit and high heels. <laughs> yeah. Just because I just thought... Well, I at least owe him, you know, I should be there because I wrote it and he's got to do it. <laughs> so I went down there and he saw me and he just smiled. He was so cool. He was so like, all right, I'll do it. It's a good script. I'll, I'll do it. It's the, it's the show I signed on to do. So, <laughs> so, let, so let's go. And he, uh, I mean, he just went 100%, you know, it was, it was crazy. But that was, I mean, why, to me... It was like, what other situation in a show would you ever be able to write an episode like that So, other than Quantum Leap? So you've got to, that's the shows that you have to do. I mean, you don't do, you know, you don't do a show that you could have done on NCIS or you don't do a show you could have done on ER or, or, or Picket Fences. You, you do a show that's organic to that genre and that template, you know, and so... To me, it was a perfect it was a perfect uh, marriage of just fun and you know just getting him into a situation that the audience would just get a kick out of seeing. You know, yeah, uh, that was a funny part of the episode. Are there any parts of the episode that you you saw that kind of made you cringe and wish you did different? Well, you know, you write stuff sometimes, and you you know you don't sometimes you think sometimes it's it's never delivered the way or as strong as you uh, envision it, you know, the actors may not get it or the director may not convey what you were thinking. And so you don't really, sometimes you, you, you don't see what's in your mind. But when I saw the, the scene of the guy, the photographer taking the girl's picture and, and having her take her clothes off, it really bothered me. And it really, it really, it got to me because I didn't think it was going to be that sort of hard, you know, that sort of rough. And it, and, and it made me uneasy when I saw it, you know, and it didn't make me that uneasy when I wrote it, but it, when I saw it and I saw the actors bring it alive, I just, I felt like, mm, did I write, I wrote that, you know, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> so that was a very creepy moment. Yeah, it was. And the girl was real sweet and, just she played it so well, and the guy that played the photographer—I can't remember his name—he was fantastic, and he did a really good job with it. And, and you know, they did, did what they were supposed to do. They they made they made it better than than it was on the page. And um, 
so that was uh that was kind of um surprising you know and and like mm. where where did you come up with that move because i ne- never knew that move existed just walk up to a woman and start unbuttoning her blouse or dress well it was it was it you know it it came from the idea that and it still goes on today in um uh pageants you know is that these girls are so vulnerable they they have dreams and there's their dream like six inches in front of them all they have to do is go along and get along and they can maybe become what they dreamed about becoming i mean it's no different than a casting couch situation you know which i never experienced in my entire career but i guess it happened at some point somewhere but um just the idea that a guy would it's almost like you see nature shows and you see lions and and the lions are sitting there and they're watching the herd and they're waiting to see the one that's weak they're waiting to see the one that they can get you know and i and that was that character that photographer character he saw this girl and he and he saw her weakness and he just he played to it you know he played to the she came from nowhere she came from like you know a farm somewhere and he was like hey i, I can give you everything i can you'll never have to go back to that life if you just do what i tell you to do so it was it was it was that power versus vulnerability kind of thing it's it's kind of classic in hollywood very cool yeah uh that makes a lot of sense so nobody ever tried to sleep with you to for you to get ahead in hollywood no i kept waiting and nothing <laughs> happened it, it, nobody nobody but although you know i did i did have one cool thing happen once when i was i had a uh an overall deal at paramount this was a year a few years after quantum and um i was i was in, and i don't know if the people know but i i'm disabled i i was in a car accident when i was a teenager and 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 broke my neck and so i was got getting around i got around on crutches for many years and um i was going into the uh commissary to have lunch with a friend of mine a, a woman named kathy ling who's fantastic she's producing uh the new tv series roadies and she did that stephen king time travel show with james franco oh yeah that's uh it's a great show we just did a whole podcast series on that with uh, a couple people yeah she's been she's just a wonderful person. She was an executive at, at Universal, so we would have lunch once a week. So I'm in there uh, having lunch with her, and um, I get a – there's this guy that's across the dining room from me just watching me, just staring at me. And I said to the cat, I go, that dude's just like eyeballing me, you know? And, and uh, so I went back to my office, and I got a call, and – the guy, the guy was a guy named Lynn Stallmaster, and he was like one of the biggest casting agents in, in um, the business. And he calls me, and he got my name, and he thought I looked like I could play the lead in a new military combat series that they were about to do, and he, they needed a, a guy to play a lieutenant in the in the in the army. And he, and he thought I looked great, and was I an actor? And I, I told him, I said did you not see that I walked in on crutches and walked out on crutches? He goes, Oh, I thought you just hurt your knee or something. I go, no, no, those are pretty much the real thing. You know? So that was kind of as close as I got to a casting couch, the guy, but I was kind of flattered. You know, I was like, uh, well, too bad. I could have been, it could have been my big shot, you know? Yeah. Did you ever do a cameo in the background of quantum leap? Not in quantum. I did one in the pretender. Oh, cool. I played, a. The character's called the Pajama Man, 
and I'm wearing my pajamas from home and I'm on a little motorized scooter and I'm at the bottom of the center, this dark, nefarious uh, construct, this building, and I just roll past camera and I have one line to camera and then I just roll on. And uh, that was my, that's the only time I've actually been on camera. But my kid, my daughter's been in a couple episodes of, she was in an episode of um, Quantum and she was in a, an episode of The Pretender. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, she has what she has a couple lines. She's about she was about seven years old and oh cool. Played, yeah, so uh, I think it was a quantum or maybe it was both pretenders. I have to look it up and let you know. All right, let me know. the The couple questions I had in my head while I was watching this episode that uh, inspired me to text you was, uh, well, the first one was the character of like the mean girl, uh, Miss Confederacy, I think, Victoria Jenkins. It yeah. seemed like she was set up for like a larger role in the episode, but nothing ever came of that. Was that like cut for time or just what? Was yeah, it might have been. You know, I mean, those those scenes, those shows got cut to pieces. You know, and and storylines would get dropped, and so she may have. I don't remember. I don't remember her being a major part i just you know she just served the story and um god that's funny i didn't remember she was because we couldn't there were like rights on names that we couldn't use real names of pageants oh yeah that makes sense we had to come up with all these phony (laughs) pageant winning things you know and that was like you know you get that from legal and then it's like i gotta spend all day now making up (laughs) pageants you know and so my uh, favorite was miss corn muffin yeah, Miss Corn Muffin. I, I that might have been one of the last ones. <laughs> yeah, she was funny. That was a funny one. Uh, but then the whole thing with the, you know, I mean, I I think now that also being on stage and watching Dean and and Scott dance as Carmen Miranda, oh, that was pretty. That was pretty special too. I love that part so much. Just seeing the two yeah. guys uh, like Road to Bally style singing and dancing. Yeah, great. yeah, it's and great. they. They were game. They were so game for everything, you know, and, and they actually liked it. They, I, I mean, Scott, Scott, you know, he's a musician and he's he's a music guy. And, and so he always wanted to, to not that he got to do anything musical there, really, but but he always liked music in the show. So, yeah, he's he's pretty awesome. Speaking of cutting the show up, another thing that seemed odd to me was uh, how Connie was so offended, how Sam stole the speech that she had ready in the like orientation. And then they, she was like hurt and sad and really upset. And then the next scene, they're coming out of the elevator and they're really okay with each other. There's like a looped in line, like to kind of explain it, but was there more of a transition when you, uh, it was something like she said something like, Oh, that's okay. You were just nervous, but it was definitely looped in. Yeah. I think it was, you know, the 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 thing was for me with quantum was there was always a, a formula, you know, and it was always Scott, you know, trying to Scott would get a plan and uh, he would, you know, start the plan and the plan would go to hell and he'd have to scramble and and start a new plan, but he would always do stuff that he thought was in the best interest of the person. Then it would always be the thing that screwed things up, you know, <laughs> and so that he was in the third act, he would have to come up with a new plan. And then, and then the fourth act was, let's, you know, fix it again. But I, I, I'm sure that had something to do. I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure him 
stealing the uh, the speech was partly survival for him mm-hmm. uh, as a character, and because he he didn't know what to say, and and then the other thing was maybe it was just a way for him to sort of get closer to her, even if it was in a negative way, you know, just to get on her radar so that he could get, because he had to get close enough to her to to find out what was going to happen, you know. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. There, I mean, they're like, you know, it's very similar. The show is very similar to another show I did called The Dead Zone. They're very, they're much, almost geometry problems, you know. When you start uh, doing time, you know, leaping and, and, and things affecting other things, and, it, and they really become almost math problems that you've got to graph out on, on a piece of paper so that they make sense and they work within the context of the uh, rules that, you know, in, that, in this case, the rules that Don had created. So, you know, so we'd come up with shows and think they were great, and Don would go, that breaks the rule, you know, that doesn't, and then he'd go, oh, he's right, you know, you just didn't see, you didn't do the math, so that was always a real challenge on, on quantum, uh, even, you know, I mean, the same different challenge on dead zone. Cause you've got a guy in the lead character who can touch people and see their future. But the rule is he can only see it when he's touching them. So, you know, it, 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 it just, it's, again, it becomes a, a, like a geometry problem, but that was the, also the great challenge of the show and, and why it works so well, because we really, we had rules. They were really solid rules, and we really didn't break them. And and we, you know, so the audience could, you know, and I'm sure you guys have seen probably where we did break the rules. So. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I guarantee some of those weren't were out of necessity, but some of those were probably just accidental on our parts because it was just it got so convoluted sometimes. Yeah. It can happen, but you know you don't want it to let the rules get in the way of a good story, right? Yeah, a good story, and and you know Don would always be happy if it if it if it just you know he he his thing was heart and humor, and and that's that's what the show had to have. Every episode had to have some heart and and a humor, and um, so that was our marching orders every week, and uh, and I thought most of them worked. I mean, you know, I was talking to some guys the other day young writers who were actually working with Scott now in NCIS and, and, um, you know, we were talking about how, you know, a lot of shows now are only 10 episodes, you know, a season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's less than 24. So it was, um, some of the episodes towards the end of the seasons when we were burnt and tired, they became some of the funnier, but not on purpose episodes. They were, <laughs> There were some there were some strange storylines and and that last season the one where I left partway through the season to uh, go to Sequest was man we were we were digging the bottom of the barrel for some of those story ideas so but it was uh you know it, it, I think we did I think we did a lot of good stories and and it's like anything else when you do a hundred. 80 to 100 episodes or something, they're not all going to be great. You know, there's going to be great ones, and there's going to be ones that just almost just fill time, you know. Yeah, but uh, you you did some great ones. Uh, a lot of people, they, they concentrate on the actors and maybe the directors or different people, but uh, I'm one of the people that are just a big fan of the writer because the, without the idea and without the words, there's no show. So I'd like to just hey. thank you for your amazing writing on Quantum Leap. 
Oh, man. Well, I appreciate it. I, anybody that's out there still watching the show, and I run into people all the time, and they, they say they love the show, and it's one of their favorite shows. And, and I always tell them it's my favorite show, too, that I ever worked on. I mean, I've worked on a bunch of them, but I never I never had the excitement of going to work every day like I did on that show. And maybe it's because it was my first series, and and I was really eager to please but it was um i just i learned i learned so much writing on that show from chris rupenthal and paul brown and and deborah and don taught me an amazing amount about writing and um so it was for me it was it was like getting paid to go to film school you know and and uh but uh you know if you didn't he kept me on a short lease though you know he didn't he he always gave me like 10-week contracts and even when i'd been there three years, I was like, could I get a, like a year long contract? He goes, well, let's see how the next script comes. I'd already written 10 scripts, you know, it's like, all right, okay. I got to prove myself again, you know? So, but that's the way it was. And, and, and that was fine with me, but I appreciate you, you paying attention to the writing because a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people you talk to, they, they go, do you make up the words too? And, you know, <laughs> they don't really get how it works, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I make up the story and the words and everything. Camera shot. It's it's really the most important part. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about writers, one of my favorite segments is by Christopher D. Philippus. Welcome, everyone. I'm Christopher D. Philippus, and I'm here to say thank you. Thank you, Miss Deep South for bringing fun back to Quantum Leap. Let's recap Season 3 so far, shall we? We go straight from the Season 2 heartbreak of M.I.A. to a dead father, a dead brother, the hell of war, a dead photographer, a murderous Italian psychopath who almost drives an alcoholic priest to murder, a main character who has lost his faith because of another dead father, another main character who's been shot in the head, a drug-addicted model nearly mauled by a lion, a dead handyman, a murdered cop, and... Oh yeah, an appearance by the devil himself. I realized that Quantum Leap was designed to delve into bigger issues in a way that other shows of its day couldn't, but it was veering into such relentlessly dark territory at the start of Season 3 that it feels more like modern television than a program of that era. So when Sam leaps out of a literal horror show, literal, into Miss Sugarbell, complete with white patent leather flats, poodle skirt, pageant sash, tiara, and those all-important ear bobs, it was like a silver-blue beacon leading us out of a sea of quantum darkness. Earlier in the podcast, episode writer Tommy Thompson said that the guiding principles of any Quantum Leap script were heart and humor. And while the first five episodes of season three had heart to spare, the humor was sorely lacking. Miss Deep South provided a much-needed course correction, reaffirming the light and comedic tone for which Quantum Leap is so fondly remembered. As Thompson just said, having Sam leap into a beauty pageant was a perfect marriage of fun and situational humor that was organic to Quantum Leap and couldn't have been done on any other show. Sam in a tiara, Sam as a high-heeled bathing beauty, Sam twirling a lacy parasol, and my ultimate favorite... Sam dressed as Carmen Miranda, singing and dancing to Quanta Lagusta. Badly. 
This scene elevates the humor in this episode to a legitimate live-action Bugs Bunny cartoon. Only on Quantum Leap could something so outrageous have worked without derailing the show's established reality. How can we go? We haven't got a dime. But we're going, and we're going to have a happy time. Oh, thank you. That was the most humiliating experience of my life. Now, I'm not saying that I ripped Tommy off, but it's not by accident that I have Sam leap into a female mud wrestler in my novel Foreknowledge and spend a good portion of the story dressed in a yellow string bikini. Episodes like Miss Deep South were obviously helping inform my comedic choices, and while I never consciously articulated it to myself, after hearing Tommy talk about it, I now realize that having Sam inhabit the persona of Candy Apple in my book was my way of exploiting that unique potential for funny and tapping that vein of humor that is so quintessentially Quantum Leap. Of course, into all this humor, drama must intrude, and the dramatic aspects of Miss Deep South are okay, in a perfunctory 90s TV kind of way. But while having naked photographs of yourself somewhere out in the wild is a horrific prospect for many, the notion that they would be downright life-shattering probably seems like kind of a stretch for modern audiences in this era of skimpy Instagram selfies and sex tape celebrities. But comedy, comedy is timeless, and it's the comedy in Miss Deep South that makes this episode an all-timer. In fact, my wife thinks that the scene where Sam gets his ear bobs is the funniest in the series, rivaled only by Cousin Aubrey and his mustard poultice in Leap Between the States. But that's a debate for another day. Suffice it to say, the comedy is back in Quantum Leap, and it's here to st- What? What? What's that? The next episode is about race riots? Are they funny race riots? No. Oh boy. Hit it, Carmen. We gotta get going, where are we going, what are we gonna do? We're on our way to somewhere, but only me and you. Or we see there, who will see there, what'll be the big surprise? There may be caballeros with dark and flashing eyes. We're on our way, We're on our way. pick up your pack. And if we stay, we won't come back. How can we go? We haven't got a dime, but we're going, and we're gonna have a happy time. Well, you may go to college, you may go to school. You may have a pink Cadillac, but don't you be nobody's fool. Now, baby, baby, come back, baby, come back. Come back, baby, come. Come back, baby, I want to play house with you. Well, listen to me, baby, what I'm talking about. Come on back to me, little girl, so we can play some house. Now, baby, come on back, baby. Come back, baby, baby. Come on back, I want to play house with you. Well, this is one thing, baby, what I want you to know. Come on back, let's play a little house and act like we did before. Now, baby, come back, baby, come back. Come back, baby, come back. Come on, baby, I want to play house with you. Hey, hey. 
on back, baby, come back. Come on back, I wanna play house with you. And that was from the Quantum Leap soundtrack, available where fine CDs and, I guess, Apple Music is sold. Do you have any uh, memories of this song, Peter? It's not coming back to me as as easy as I'd hope. It's, uh, I, I guess it's an Elvis song. It's from the penultimate episode of Quantum Leap. It's the show right before Mirror Image, and it's uh, when he leaped into Elvis, and he uh, sings a baby come back. I don't think it's one of those ones that I'm familiar with. I know a lot of Elvis songs, but probably more so his mainstream ones, I would say. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I know the, you know, the top 10, let's say, the ones that would be on the greatest hits. Exactly. Actually, I own I, I believe it's called Elvis Number 1s. Ooh, something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good one. I recommend it. We can't talk too much about that episode because we're not there yet. That's uh, quite a ways away. But mm-hmm. uh, I like to throw in a Quantum Leap song here or there. But uh, remember to support your artists. Go out and pay for that CD. Buy the album. I agree. So, Peter, people might not know your voice as well as I do because I consider you a friend and we do a podcast together on another feed. But why don't you tell the Quantum Leap podcast listeners a little bit about yourself, Mr. Peter Vonisek? Yes. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I have provided... Uh, uh, voice talent, you can say, to the uh, the Quantum Leap podcast, the uh, the fan fiction called the Quantum Leap Impossible Dream, and I forgot which episode I was on, but I you know I played a little role. I host a movie review podcast called Hydrate Level Four, which is a line taken from Back to the Future Part Two, and uh, I'll be that's how we know each other. You were a guest on my show talking about kind of what you remembered about the trilogy for its 30th anniversary. Uh, You've guested on my show a couple more times. I believe you joined me for the review of the documentary Back in Time, directed by Jason Aaron, I believe it was, which uh, released on Netflix. And I remember that you and I both stayed up extremely late waiting for it to drop uh, on, (laughs) on Netflix. So. And for those that are fans of Back to the Future, also know that on Future Day, they released a like an ultimate collector's edition kind of thing, you know, encased in a flux capacitor, which inside there also uh, came along the uh, animated series, season one and two. So you and I, we got together and decided to do a podcast covering just that, all 26 episodes. And once we finish that, we'll probably look into possibly reviewing the game that came out under Telltale Games, and maybe even the comic books afterwards. So we're, you know, on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, Clearly, both you and I, we have other things that we have to take care of. And um, so... (laughs) Life has been busy. Life has been very busy. So it's not, it hasn't ended, if anyone was wondering. Um, We're we're still here. We just, uh, we're we're not putting them out as regular as we would like. We have one in the can. It's coming out soon. It's the one where they go into space in the future, right? What's that one called? Uh, I don't remember the title, but, <laughs> but that's exactly it. It was in space, and one of the first times, 
that uh, takes place in the future, I would say. Yeah. And uh, the next one we're talking about will be the Christmas episode, like a Charles Dickens type episode. So that'll be fun. So if, if you guys haven't heard that, it's me and Peter and we're talking about Back to the Future, the animated series. Yes. Check it out. Baronspace.com. Speaking of uh, lots of stuff happening, man, that last episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, I'm not even going to say the name of it because I totally believe in the curse now, but let's let's call it the Halloween episode. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, it started off with, what, hurricanes, earthquakes, and it just got worse and worse and worse from there. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately it did. I'm a skeptic and non-believer, but uh, I don't know. When it comes to that episode, I... I my irrational brain takes over the rational brain on that one. I know exactly what you mean. But hey, we're back. We're back we in the are. saddle. We're we're talking about Quantum Leap, one of my favorite shows of all time. And I have my good friend Peter with me to talk about it. So we're going to actually go to feedback now. How does that sound, Peter? That sounds great. I am excited. I, I can't contain it. <laughs> you are actually on the Quantum Leap podcast. This is crazy. Albie, this is something I've been waiting for ever since, I want to say, episode two of the Quantum Leap podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it was episode three where you guys actually read my, my very first email uh, to your show. So I remember that uh, one. I, I beat your Quantum Leap podcast idea by <laughs> what, three weeks or so? Something like that, yeah. It, But, but uh, I'm glad it worked out that way because I wouldn't have been able to put out you know, this grade of content in comparison to your guys' show. So uh, I'm happy to be doing the animated series of Back to the Future with you instead. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know what they say, it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a, a world to make a podcast. We literally have 17 people that work on this show and you're one of them. And yes. uh, now it's good to hear you on the show. Okay, yeah. our first feedback is an email from Robin Burge. He says, hi there, Albie, Heather, and the rest of the QLP team. I have been rewatching Quantum Leap for the first time since I watched it as a kid when it originally aired. I am currently on A Portrait for Troyan. That's a good episode. Mm -hmm. And I have been listening to the podcast episode by episode. Great discussion, excellent podcast, and I've really been happy that you've gone the extra effort of tracking down the guest stars to interview them. One thing that I have been trying to pay attention to is the show's ongoing story as it pertains to how much Sam and his Swiss cheese brain knows about the project. One thing I had been waiting for is Sam asking what happens to the people he leaps into. Where do they go? What happens when Sam leaps out and they are returned? Does Sam leave a note? And his note says, quote, Hello, Leapy. You may be missing a few days, but I gotta tell you, life got a lot better for you and everyone thinks you're a hero and that girl you like is super sweet on you now. Don't screw this up. I left a slice of pie in the fridge. I cleaned the dishes, but I didn't get to the laundry. Sorry, your friend in time, Sam. P.S. Your mother called. He goes on to say, I did remember the concept of the waiting room from when I originally watched. So I was looking forward to that being revealed on the show and it being fully explained. But then I was surprised in A Portrait for Troyan when Al nonchalantly started talking about how the real Tim Mintz had freaked out in the waiting room, thinking he was abducted by aliens. So I have to ask the experts, did I miss something? When was the concept of the waiting room first introduced? And is it ever explained what happens when the Leapy returns back to his or her time? I look forward to hopefully having this question answered when I can finally catch up. Take care. And that, again, was from Robin Burge. I think he's had time to catch up now. What do you think, Peter? I think so. It, 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 you know, he's gotten some time there. 
And uh, you may recognize the last name. It turns out, after he sent this email, we got together on Facebook and talked a little bit. Apparently, we're like cousins or something. We share the same common great-grandfather, maybe? Oh, okay. I thought that maybe he was such a big fan, he changed his last name. People have done that. Yeah, I believe it. I noticed that a lot on uh, women's notebooks. Like, they'll write their first name and then my last name. Oh, yes, yes. I, I remember those days. Hearts, X's, and O's. I don't know what any <laughs> of that means, but whatever, you know. Hey. I think they're playing tic-tac-toe. Ah. <laughs> so, Peter, you and me are the experts. Let's talk about this. Uh, when um, when do they hmm. talk about that? Let's see. The first episode I could think of uh, to involve – well, I don't remember. Albie, I'll I think you're probably more of the expert than me. I don't know – how far Robin is now, but I do remember the episode uh, Shock Treatment. What what season was that, one or two? It ends three, right? Okay, so he may not be there yet, but it, I feel in that episode, that's where we find out that the Leap B retains Sam's memories when they come back. So I I think, does that answer Robin's question, do you think? A little bit. I, th- I think there's a few different takes on that. And there's the other one where, of course, the uh, criminal escapes the waiting room later on. But uh, we won't go too far into that because there's some spoilers. Okay. I think I know which one you're talking about. That's a good one. I would say, actually, if you really want to know what happens to the Leapy and more about what happens to the Leapy after Sam leaps out, I recommend a great novel by my friend Christopher D. Philippus. It's called Quantum Leap Foreknowledge. And that basically answers that question wholeheartedly with a great, terrific story. I'll read you the first page of that. It says, prologue. He's coming home now, Sam. No, I won't read the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) What was the one where he leaped into that, uh, the professor and Donna was in the episode played by Terry Hatcher? You are talking about season one, episode three, Starcrossed. Yeah, I I, I want to say there's something in there that gives us some more clues of uh, Project Quantum Leap. Uh, in the future, but it, it it has been a while since I've seen it. I want to say something in there. My general feeling is uh, that they didn't know, so they didn't tell us, or a nicer way to say that is they thought the audience was really intelligent and just threw us in there and we could figure it out as we went along. Uh, I like to say the latter. That sounds like a good one, Albie. That's <laughs> why you're the expert. <laughs> We're the experts, Peter. Oh, well, thank you. But I I, I think you're the expert. You have the show. (laughs) Thanks for writing, Robin. Yes, thank you. And the next one is from Stephen Munn. He says, hi there, Heather and Albie. And Peter. I really like your show. I discovered it only recently due to a chain reaction. My girlfriend moved in with me about a year ago. And while we were going through one of her boxes late last year, We found a Sam Beckett Quantum Leap bookmark from her childhood. Some months later, it was accidentally scooped up with some laundry I was doing and was cracked in half in the washing machine. I immediately tried to replace it online and found someone selling a bunch of them on eBay. I bought two, so now we each have one. We started talking about Quantum Leap and I decided I wanted to watch it again. She and I both grew up fans of the show. Unfortunately... My initial memory relating to the show was not great because at one point, NBC moved the show to a later time slot, which was past my bedtime. We had a VCR, but I wasn't allowed to record the show for some reason. I don't remember why. 
I remember being really upset that I couldn't see the show anymore. But that's how things were back then. Shows went out of reach or simply went away and you never saw them again. Eventually, as an adult, I managed to catch a handful of later episodes on TV, including the finale. More recently, I remember the show coming back in HD. I think it was on USA HD here in the US. I was so excited. This was right when I got a DVR. So I set the DVR to record all the episodes and I carefully watched them in order to the best of my ability. After running the first two seasons, USA looped back to the beginning. I gave them one more chance, but they never progressed past the second season. I had to give up on Quantum Leap yet again. When the show was released on DVD about a decade ago, I didn't have the money to buy them and I wouldn't have anyway. I heard about the music replacement fiasco and I said to myself, forget it. What little I remembered of the show was enough to stop me from accepting the music replacement and purchasing. Music is one of the key parts of how Quantum Leap shared its messages. When I watched Disco Inferno recently, I saw the music replaced version. Yuck. I'm just finishing up Quantum Leap Podcast episode 16 now. I've been listening to it while my girlfriend and I work our way through the series now that I've finally picked up all but season 4 on DVD. We use a combination of the Netflix selection from the show and episodes on DVD. I got seasons 2 and 3 on Amazon UK, 1 and 5 on Amazon US so I can get the music. Here's hoping the upcoming Blu-ray release has all the music, especially for season 4. I'll be there buying it again if it does. I'm still going on this email, but why not? You seem fine with long messages. A few thoughts on Quantum Leap Canon. Father Beast wrote in and came across as pretty angry about the way you two talked about Sam leaping in time, leaving his body behind. The explanation of how it works in the show was unexplained when it wasn't underexplained. Sometimes it was inconsistent and even directly contradictory. The Saga Cell explains that Sam vanished when he stepped into the accelerator. That implies that he physically disappeared, and I'm confident that's what they meant. But then, in What Price Gloria, Al very directly explains to Sam and the audience that Sam's body is in the waiting room with Samantha's consciousness in it, and Samantha's body is there in the 1960s with Sam's consciousness in it. As you've said on the show, the mirror shows how Sam looks to others, generally, and we only see Sam's body for our own benefit. It's made very, very clear that Al sees Samantha in that episode when he looks at Sam. That leaves the question of how others see something other than the person Sam left into. Going all the way back to Genesis, we saw Fox's dog barking at Sam and reacting to Al. My head cannon there told me that the dog could sense that something was wrong with Fox. Sam's consciousness in Fox's body would have changed things like body language, and Sam would have been agitated. I think Heather pointed that out during your podcast about that show. So, what did the dog see? I guessed that he saw Al, but how? How would a dog see a hologram that's only in Sam's brain? My impression from what was said in Genesis was that the reason only Sam can generally see Al is because Al's image is being broadcast specifically to Sam's brain, and only he is intended to receive it. Again, my head cannon fills in the blanks. At first, I thought maybe the dog was reacting to Sam's behavior. In other words, the dog sees Sam acting as if there's a person there, and it makes the dog uneasy. But that's quickly knocked down when Al, standing behind Sam, soothes the dog without Sam seeing it happen. 
So I decided that if animals and children are somehow more receptive psychologically, they are like broad range antenna that also receive that broadcast which was intended for Sam. Al gives a similar explanation to this. In a portrait for Torian, due to the amplification effect of the psychic's equipment, Torian and her brother can hear Al's voice. So there's a broadcast there to Sam's brain that's being picked up. In Another Mother, the little girl says she sees a man in mommy's clothing. She also very clearly sees and hears Al. So she's receiving that broadcast too? I guess. But then, if this is the case, how can Sam see in blind faith? Isn't he in a blind body? In the boxing episode, Sam couldn't box, but unlike Father Beast, I didn't think it was because Sam was out of shape compared to the boxer he jumped into. It was because Sam didn't know how to box, and he had to be trained to do so. Or the boxer was out of shape because he hadn't actually been boxing for a while. Didn't Al or someone else in that episode say that? Perhaps a combination of both. Now the writers have decided that Sam knows several kinds of martial arts. If that had always been the case, Sam would have been in fighting shape all along. None of it really matters, I guess. My point is that there is little internal consistency in Quantum Leap. If they rebooted the show or continued it somehow as a film or a new series, I expect they'd come up with a book that answers all these questions and they'd work from that in the movie. As Albie suggested once, Quantum Leap needs a Bible. It's very rare for me to feel this way about a show, but I let it go. I see Quantum Leap as coming from an era where there was very little attention paid to internal consistency outside of huge brands like Star Trek. I love Quantum Leap and I really enjoy your podcast. The editing work is impressive. I have a podcast too. We just recorded our 237th episode, though I've only been on that show since 2008 or so. Before that, I was on a different one which I did the editing on myself, so I know what a huge task that is. It took me at least twice the duration of the podcast to edit it, and even more when we had as many as five people on the show, none of whom were physically in the same place. The show I'm on now is recorded live and broadcast on Twitch, then uploaded as video to YouTube and sent out on a feed through iTunes. Either way, thanks so much for making this show. I'm still marathoning my way through it. At this point in my email, I'm almost 20 minutes into your episode 17. You've got a great dynamic. Albie is approximately me. We're the same age, and most of our experience of the show matches. Heather really gives me great additional perspective on the show as someone much younger than me and Albie who doesn't have childhood experience of the show. It helps me form better criticism of this favorite. So, I guess, thanks for everything. I'll probably contribute more to the show once I'm caught up by sending in audio for the show. Probably about time travel stuff and logical problems with that, but take care for now. And that was from Stephen Munn. Yeah, editing is hard. Uh, we, I wish it took only two times as long as the length of the show. It's worth it, though. Would you like to start with some of his points, Peter? Sure, he's got quite a bit here. Um, where? Do, how far do we want to go back? Um, one of the things that he did mention was kind of the consistency of the show. I wouldn't say I watched a whole lot of TV shows back in the 80s and 90s. They were more sitcoms. But I feel that we're spoiled with very great writing 
you know, in, in TV shows now where they have callbacks to things, you know, from um, previous seasons. And not to say that Quantum Leap doesn't do that. It was just a different time. So the rules were a little bit loose and it is a show about time traveling. So there aren't always going to be things. Well, I, I guess the rules aren't always going to be set in stone. So if you sit there and nitpick everything, I think it takes, you know, your enjoyment out of it. So I guess my thing would be just to kind of remember that it's a show that did start in 1989. So the the writing was a little bit different back then. And that's all I can say, I, I, I guess. I understand the, the nitpick, but I feel like if you just watch it uh, with a, more of an open mind and just take everything with a grain of salt, that you'll perhaps enjoy the characters more and maybe the story that they're trying to tell, you know, as opposed to trying to pick apart their rules. And yeah. And uh, like I was saying to Tommy Thompson earlier, a good story takes precedent over following the rules, let's say that may or may not have existed at the time. And I don't think it's a writer's fault at all. I think it's a different time. I think if someone turned in a script that was like a modern day series where, everything tied into everything that had come before it. And somebody turned that script in back then, they'd be like, what are you doing? This is not what we do. We need something more like A-Team. So I think the writers and producers tried to make it as intelligent as the audience at the time could handle. If that makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And if you want to make a comparison to Back to the Future, now that movie, that script has been called a flawless script. It's been called like the perfect script. And there are things to nitpick in that movie as well. I mean, just just for example, and I, you know, I don't want to turn this into the Back to the Future show, but when when the clock strikes at ten o four p.m., how do they know exactly what second would the lightning strike? Well, if you think about that too much, you, you know, you're gonna miss out on the movie. It's just 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 accept it. You know, the entire. 10.04 up to the 59 seconds, you know, the lightning striking the clock tower will still generate the 1.21 gigawatts. Did I make anyone go cross-eyed yet, Albie? <laughs> Not me, because I, <laughs> I love the Back to the Future talk, but you know that. Yeah, but but you get what I'm trying to say too, right? You I know, do. Yeah, and like in Back to the Future, like if that became like a TV series, I, I can see it possibly having to bend more rules just to make the show work. So that's what is going on with Quantum Leap. You know, it spans over five seasons. So, you know, there, there are going to be times where they mention something in a previous season, in a previous episode that may contradict itself later on. So hopefully, hopefully I explained that. I, who, who knows? Yeah, I, I know nothing. I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> okay a and sports reference <laughs> i have no idea what sports are okay this is another one from Stephen munn i have to completely disagree with father beast's comments on good night dear heart as shared in qlp 26 pool hall blues he begins by saying something like the best way to determine if something is prejudiced is to reverse it then he goes on to provide examples of other types of relationships and whether it would be seen as prejudicial in those situations and concludes that no, it's not prejudice. That would only work if we assume all players are on a level playing field, which I do not think is ever true in the case of prejudice. Lesbian relationships were not generally accepted in the 1950s or in the 1990s. And I think they're still widely dismissed in 2015, when all the content was discussed on the podcast. Lesbians are not on a level playing field. 
As others have pointed out, there is a long history of those who were not heterosexual being portrayed as deviant in a number of ways. The vast majority of these representations have been negative. Continuing to do so perpetuates dangerous stereotypes. If healthy gay relationships had been all over entertainment media, even showing up one quarter as often as they do in the real world, then this type of storytelling might not be pandering to that deviant bias. But they don't, and it is. To put it another way, if an impressionable person, perhaps a child, watches a hundred different television shows and only two of them have any gay characters, and one show uses them as comic relief and the other uses them as killers or confused murder victims, what conclusion might they draw? Humans naturally extrapolate. Surely it's not television's job to raise children, but all media is responsible for the messages it hands out. And better media considers this. That aside, I will say that I think in Goodnight Dear Heart, the writers were using the relationship as a device to make the resolution of the mystery more of a surprise. It's lazy storytelling, and it's indicative of an era, 1990 or so, that was less aware of how damaging such representations can be, but I think it was not willfully malevolent. I will fully side with Albie that Quantum Leap has a stellar track record in its messaging, and I applaud his commitment to using less offensive terms when describing people where he can. And, despite its flaws, I still love the episode. And that's the sign of real love, isn't it? Loving without denying flaws. I think Sam's flashes of happy woman at picnic may have been intended to represent his imagination, like he saw the dead woman, Hilly, and felt such pity for her that he imagined her in a happier time. I see it as something that was setting up his obsession for the viewer. And some of his dialogue supports this. Thoughts? On an earlier show, a commenter, Head Something, was reacting to your Columbus Day comments and dismissed the indigenous cultures of the Americas as living in filth before Europeans arrived to enslave and exterminate them. He implied discovery is valid despite it not being truth. Then went on to claim that mapmaker Americo Vespucci discovered America when, in truth, all he did was write the name America on the map, post-Columbus, and somehow got people to accept that as the name. Columbus and Vespucci were forgettable, opportunistic scumbags, and Columbus Day can eat my butt. America has beautiful, flawed, unsung heroes, but prefers instead to adore fairy tales. I've tried hard to keep this short because I wanted to wait until I was all caught up on your show before sending in an audio piece for you. I hope I succeeded. Love the show. Keep it up. Heather, Albie, and I'll put Peter in there too. Okay. I have to totally agree with him, and I like that he agrees with me. So, yeah, I think people that are prejudiced don't know they're prejudiced, and if they do, they try to rationalize it. And uh, what do we know? Uh, rationalization is just lying to yourself to make you feel better about how you feel, right? If you say so. <laughs> Do you have any opinion one way or the other on all this? Uh, no, these are very strong like feelings and opinions about like certain subjects. Uh, Albie, I, I'd like to think that you know me pretty well and things like this. Like I don't really see these issues when I'm watching the show. I mean, I know they're there, but I don't get too heavy into it, if that makes any sense. I mean, sure. Yeah, I don't know what that says about me, but... They're very good conversation topics, but yeah, it, it's – this guy's just really deep. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to agree with him, and I think uh, unfortunately recent tragic events have 
brought this more to the forefront that if you do perpetuate these stereotypes and people aren't viewed equally everywhere, then horrible things are possible by people with sad hearts and misguided notions. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for uh, for the feedback. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, and this next one I think we're going to skip. What do you think, Peter? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that one skipped. Okay, the next one is Matt Dale. Oh, I yes. Yeah, I'm just now looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you get the next one. Okay. This one is from Matt Dale. Hi, Albie and Heather. And Peter. I hope you're well. As a long-term fan of your wonderful podcast, I wanted you to be among the first to know about a project I've been working on for the last year, which I think you and your listeners will enjoy. Beyond the Mirror Image is an exhaustive episode guide to Quantum Leap, which I'm planning on launching via Kickstarter a little later this year, with a target end date of appropriately August 8th. It's currently coming towards the final draft stages, and I wanted to reach out to a few experts in the community, yourselves included, for some support. To give you an idea of the content, I've attached a draft PDF of a press release I'm planning on sending out to a few new sources in June. For now, I'd appreciate if you'd keep this confidential. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we're not publishing the PDF, so that's okay, right? Oh, the PDF confidential. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) At this point, I'm trying to recruit a very small number of proofreaders to have a look over the book when the next draft is completed in a month or so. Not necessarily to pick through it for every single I for dotting and T for crossing, but also to give general feedback and provide some fact-checking. The podcast, incidentally, is referenced many times throughout with a personal recommendation from myself in the bibliography. I hope it brings you a few more listeners, at least. If there's anything you can do to support the book, I would very much appreciate it. This has been a long personal project, and I'm really excited to start getting some key members of the fan community involved. Thanks, and all the best, Matt. That's a great project, Matt. Yeah, we uh, of course we'll support you on that. And uh, as far as proofreading, I wouldn't be any help at all. I spent my youth watching Quantum Leap and Star Trek, not learning my ABCs and 123s. Yeah, I and I just don't have the time. I apologize. I do host four podcasts. I, I, I barely have time to sleep. <laughs> We're skipping sleep tonight, aren't we, Peter? Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to try to get in a half an hour today. I might get in like 45 minutes if I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, sure, when the uh, project goes live, uh, send an email to us, attention Juan, and he'll take care of it because he's awesome. And the next one's from Nicholas Sweeto. He sent it to us on May the 4th. Be with you. Exactly. That was a good day. What did you do that day? I watched Star Wars. What did I do? Gosh, it was just a couple months ago. I, I don't recall what I did. Uh, I I may not have done anything Star Wars related except for a Facebook post. Huh. I'm going to go with that. I think I watched The Force Awakens with Serenity, and uh, she digs Star Wars. She really likes Star Wars more than Star Trek, and she can tell them apart. Like, she'll go to a store, and she'll point at Blu-rays and go, Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Trek, and she's right every time. So she's got a talent. She's only she's three. She's very smart. She's very smart. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nicholas says, Hello, I wanted to let you know that I have started an episode review of Quantum Leap on my blog, and I wanted to share it with you and other fans of the show. And he included a hyperlink that we will include in the show notes. 
I recently found your podcast online. It looks really good, and I look forward to listening to it. Thanks, Nick. Well, thank you for the feedback, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hopefully you got this far. So about 72 hours from uh, starting the show, you can hear your email. Yay. Yay. It's more like, I think, 80 or 90. It's crazy. <laughs> I've lost count. The next one is from Ian McGarry. Ian says, hi, Heather and Albie. And Peter. Just a quick email to say thank you for doing such a great podcast. I'm a big fan of Quantum Leap and was lucky to have watched it here in Scotland during its original run on BBC Two when I was a kid. I have the box set on DVD, but upon hearing about the omission of some of the music, I waited until the higher quality reruns started showing again on our sci-fi channel. I always missed the first few seasons, but finally I managed to watch it again from the very beginning. I have just finished MIA and now have the Leap Home Parts 1 and 2 waiting for me. As for your podcast, I am just finishing up Freedom, so I am not too far behind from being current. It still amazes me how much clarity I still have from watching the episodes again after all these years. It really struck a chord with me, and when I watch the program, it feels like a warm furry blanket from my youth and I can't help but smile. I am a watch manager in the fire service over here and would like to say I was influenced to become a firefighter after the first episode in season two when he saved a cat up a tree. But in actuality, it was after watching Steve Martin when I was eight years old in the movie Roxanne that did it for me. I am also married with two beautiful girls, Daisy, named after Princess Daisy from Super Mario Land, who is about to turn six, and Matilda, named after the Roald Dahl book, who is three and a bit. My wife has now caught the quantum leap bug, and she was hysterical after the ending of MIA. She just loves Sam and Al, as we all do. I have attached a YouTube link to a small video I'd done today. Nothing fancy, just from iMovie with my two girls. I'm sure you will appreciate the music. Keep up the good work. I am looking forward to catching up. And I really appreciate all your hard work you have done for the podcast so far. And that is from Ian McGarry. Thank you, Ian. Scotland. I love Scotland. Yeah, I watch Outlander. You watch Outlander? I do not, but I know Sean Connery is from Scotland. Oh, yeah. He's from Scotland. <laughs> that yeah. sounds just like him. I thought that was him. Quantum Leap. <laughs> Scotland is so beautiful on that show Outlander and, of course, Highlander. And uh, I, that's one of the places I've always wanted to go. That and Ireland. Those, those are on my list. And, of course, all the Disney parks around the world. Uh, I have stopped in Ireland, but not very long. It was just in passing. What part? Uh, the airport. <laughs> <laughs> they, have one, I, I, they have one airport in there? I have no idea. It was, it was actually when I was in the Army, and it was uh, one of our stops on our way to Afghanistan. Oh, okay. That's great. Well, that's most of our feedback. Yay, thank you everyone for the feedback. Hopefully hopefully you guys were okay with me reading it. It was my first time. You have a great voice, Peter. Well, well thank you, Albie. I, I, I like yours too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great feedback. Sorry it took us so long to get to it, but again, the Halloween episode, kind of building back the house, you know, and uh, picking up the pieces. So we're, we're getting back into it, and we'll never ever talk or speak of that episode or even watch it ever again. Mm, I wouldn't say ever again. Uh, well, when I need something to go back, <laughs> then I'll, I'll put that one on and then I'll put a helmet on and see what happens. 
I wish uh, you well. <laughs> Thank you. That's all for feedback this time. There are many ways that you can leave feedback for the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can go to our website, which is quantumleappodcast.com. You can send an email and MP3 to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook us, and we're at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. And you can send a tweet via Twitter at quantumleappod. And we are on Instagram, also on quantumleappod. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, don't worry. There's no one there. It's 707-847-6682. And uh, if you do leave one, uh, it'll probably get played on the air. Albie, I have a little story about that voicemail of yours. Oh, please tell. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever shared this with you. So when I found the Quantum Leap podcast, I was still a new podcast listener. Uh, this is way before I even started my own podcast as well. And I listened to your show, and you had a phone number where I can you know, call and leave a message. So I called the phone number, and my heart is just racing. I'm, I'm just scared. <laughs> I didn't know if you guys were going to pick up. I didn't know if it was just a voice box. Like Heather would but, go, hey, what's up? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I've never called into anything like that before. And so, yeah, I, I dialed the phone number, and my heart's just racing. And and then it's the Terra Nova like intro, and I'm like, "What is this the right number?" And <laughs> so I don't think I knew you guys had previously done Terra Nova before. As well. was that the name of the show? The Terra Nova was, Podcast available yes. at terranovapodcast.com for most of the time. Our server's kind of wonky right now. Okay, so so that that, that was it. Uh, I I tried calling, and I, I don't think I ever left one. Uh, I might have, but but definitely not that time. I kind of hung up immediately. <laughs> I was just too scared to leave a message. I like calling a girl almost. Yeah, for the very first time. Absolutely. That's that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's why I reassure everybody now that no one will pick up. Trust me. There we go. And as far as calling a girl, I got over that when I got to call all these actresses that were on Quantum Leap and that were my childhood and teenage crushes all that time. And I just call them up on their iPhone and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And then they Facebook friend me and then I have friends that I used to have posters of on my wall. So life is good. I'm going to kind of channel my inner millennial here. So I am so jelly. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> also, we are on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast if you want to help out the show. So uh, any any donation will help. And uh, you know about Patreon. It's a, it's a way to give back to the artists that uh, put so much time and effort in making the product you love to listen to at this point you're probably four or five hours into the show it's it's worth a couple bucks i think right Absolutely. and uh i'd like to thank our patrons tom quinn donald summerlin nancy quinn and matt dale thank you so much yes thank you peter do you have any news yes according to jeff stray netflix now has all of the quantum leap episodes available I would have to say most likely so because last time I logged on to Netflix to watch Quantum Leap, which was in fact tonight because I re, 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 watched Miss Deep South because I knew I'd be talking about it. How many re's was that? I think six or seven. I don't know. Somebody can go back and count them. Let me know. Send an email to quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Or Twitter. And it's and it said all new episodes. So I was like, wow. So they probably got the few they were missing. So that's very cool. Uh, I don't have to pull out the DVD as often or the Blu-ray now. I wonder if they corrected the, um, you know, the leaps at the end of each episode, too. I doubt it. But yeah. that'll be something to figure out when we have everything back together. 
That is awesome. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, letting us know about that. And uh, that's great. That's uh, one of the things we've been asking for forever. So we can watch them nice and high definition and on Netflix so we don't actually have to get off the couch anymore. Does your 4K TV do anything uh, nice to it? It looks really good uh, on the 4K TV. Of course, it's still a 1080p video. They're not, they didn't put a 4K upload. And I happen to have a friend that works at Universal that would be privy to when and how they scan in the negatives in the future for it to be 4K. And he said, not anytime soon. And I'm paraphrasing and I might not be telling the truth. So, okay. so uh, don't hold him accountable for that. But that's my best way of saying that. Not anytime soon. But it looks okay. great. It looks great in high def. It really does. I can't wait for the 4K though. By then they'll be oh, on yeah. 8K. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. In other news, did you catch Scott Bakula reprising his role as Dr. Sam Beckett on The Late Show? I did. It was so awesome. And it was just crazy to see Scott Bakula as Sam Beckett again. And uh, of course, Dean Stockwell couldn't be there because of health issues. But it was cool that Stephen Colbert played Al and uh, it was a parody on a show coming up. And if you're waiting to listen to them in order, you haven't heard the episode yet, which is one of the Christmas episodes and one of the Christmas specials we did out of order because we were just trying different things out. But in that episode, there's a guy who is apparently Donald Trump's father and a little Donald Trump kid. And Sam Beckett actually gives him the idea to build the Trump Tower in New York City. So... Uh, Stephen Colbert did a little parody of that and uh, Scott Bakula helped him out trying to convince a young Donald Trump not to run for president. So that was hilarious. Uh, why don't we just play the clip, Peter? What do you think? I think that's a great idea. So uh, last night uh, I was watching reruns when I stumbled on one of my favorite old TV shows, Quantum Leap. You guys remember that show? Yeah. Fantastic. I loved it. Scott Bakula leaps back in time into different people's bodies in order to change history. And I saw this actual episode of Quantum Leap where Bakula's character, Dr. Sam Beckett, leaps into the body of a 1950s New York cab driver and influences a very special young boy. <coughs> where are you going? A broker's meeting. New York Realtors. Oh, well, you know there's going to be a lot of money made in real estate in the future. Really? Where? Oh, um, well, I bet there are going to be a lot of taller buildings all around here. And, um, hmm, might even be some big glass tower right there next to Tiffany's. Here you go. Thanks. Come on, Donald. Hello, Mr. Trump. Trump? See ya. There it is. Did you hear that? He said, Mr. Trump, Donald Trump's rise is the fault of Scott Bakula. <laughs> he should never reveal the secret that New York real estate is valuable. Well, we might be able to reverse this tragedy because I've got my own quantum leapy thing right here. So I can leap back and stop it from happening. Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay, Ziggy, set Quantum Leap Accelerator for the year, young Donald Trump. It worked! 
Dr. Sam Beckett. Please, please, Stephen, call me Scott Bakula. Sure thing, Dr. Beckett. Now pick up little Trump and let's get ready to change the future. Remember, I'm a hologram that only you can see or hear. And, and why is that again? I don't know. It's your show. Okay. Where are you headed, kid? My dad's office. Someday I'm going to be in real estate just like him. Okay, Scott, fix the future. Well, it sounds like a good job, but uh, listen, kid, promise me you'll never get into politics. It's a cruel business, and trust me, you couldn't handle it. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, that's not good. Ziggy says there's an 85% chance that Trump goes into politics sooner just to, quote, show some dumb cab driver who said I couldn't handle it. And he's elected president? No, he's elected pope. Oh, my God. His God now. Do something. Hey, kid, you you know what I think? Mexican people are really nice. Yeah, Mexicans are great. Yeah, there you go. Scott, no, no. What? Now he falls in love with a Mexican girl named Mariella, and she ends up breaking his heart. There's a 99% chance here that the Pope Trump still builds the wall, deports all the Hispanics, plus anybody named Paul. Who's Paul? The guy Mariella left him for. Well, so what, 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 what should we do? What are we going to do? You yeah. got a mouse in your pocket? You're the one who messed this up. I didn't mess it look, up. Scott, I don't want to tell you how to do your job. But look, it's the middle of the night. Nobody's around. You probably got a crowbar in the trunk. And the East River is right over there. What are you saying, Stephen? I'm not saying anything, Scott. Yes, you are. I'm You're not saying... saying... No, I'm not. What are you this suggesting? This was never said. I... I'm suggesting yeah. nothing, Scott. I got this. Kid, listen. Forget about real estate. It's a terrible investment. Oh, no, Scott. Now there's an 80% chance that instead of real estate, Trump gets into bioengineering and ends up cloning dinosaurs who devour anyone who questions the word of Megapope Trump. (laughs) What what are we going to do? I don't know. How are you so bad at this? How How are you so bad at this? It was a good show, but you're terrible at this. (laughs) At least, at the very least... Please. Your cigar's not Shows. even lit. It's, I can't. It's illegal to smoke on stage here. Just for Pete's sake, show some professionalism and try to set this thing back where it was all right, before. All right, all right, all right. All right, listen to me, kid. Uh, forget everything that I said to you tonight. Just do whatever you want and always say the first thing that comes to your mind. Shut up, you clown. So, did it work? We're about to find out. Ziggy says we did it. Trump is still running for president, but the time stream is back to normal. Thank God we didn't create some weird future, Scott. You can say that again, Stephen. Good boy, Scott. NCIS New Orleans is on Tuesday nights right here on CBS. Scott Bakula, everybody. (laughs) That was a great clip. I'm glad they did that. And that really, it was funny, number one. And uh, it it rekindled my passion, let's say, for Quantum Leap. And it made me put other things down and try to get this episode out. So uh, thank you, Stephen Colbert. And thank you, Scott Bakula, whom 
calls me sometimes. Okay, once, but he did. So that's something, right? That's that's more than that's one more than all of us. Yeah, you get calls from me all the time. Yeah, I, I would um, say that's pretty comparable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. So, what did you think of that skit? I thought it was pretty good. You know, it it, it may be warm and fuzzy. You know, for lack of a better word or words, I guess. But it, it's kind of like. It was kind of like when uh, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd came out on Jimmy Kimmel. Yes. You know, it uh, for, for those that uh, are maybe casual fans of the movies, maybe they saw that and was like, you know what? I need to revisit those movies, you know, and same thing with Scott Bakula playing Dr. Sam Beckett again. It must have kind of reminded some people, hey, Quantum Leap, you know, was something that existed and now they can go watch it on Netflix. I honestly thought we'd never see Scott Bakula as Sam Beckett again, and that it, it just for me it was just almost magical. Even though it was kind of a comedy skit and obviously not serious, and he was playing Scott Bakula, playing Sam Beckett, and uh, they went off script a bunch, and it, it was it was very good. And of course, I agreed with it politically, <laughs> but that's oh, sure. me. I, I always thought like the most we'd ever get Quantum Leap from Scott Bakula again is maybe a, a weird reference in NCIS New Orleans or something. So to see that – and my favorite part of the whole thing was you know how Facebook has all the trending topics? Mm -hmm. When that happened, it got all the way to the top. It wasn't for long, but that many people were like, wow, Scott Bakula is doing Quantum Leap. It might have been because Trump was in the title of the news thing, so people checked it out. But still, a lot of it probably had to do with Quantum Leap, so that means there's a lot more fans out there than we thought. Absolutely. There's actually a running joke on uh, one of my other shows where uh, I believe we did an episode. I want to say it was like a TV theme music and uh, a listener of ours wrote in, and on her list, she included Quantum Leap. And after she listed Quantum Leap, she mentioned that, you know, my co-host and I were probably too young to remember that show or, or something to that effect. And, Albie, let me tell you, I was pretty insulted. <laughs> I, I actually went on a bit of a rant, and everybody, <laughs> everyone called me Sassy Peter on that episode. Sassy Peter. I'm Sassy changing Peter. your contact info on my headphone to that. Okay, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I, Sassy. you know, it, it was all in, in love. Uh, but I, I did let her have it on that episode. I, like I said, I was pretty insulted that she thought I did not know Quantum Leap. And I, ha I even ranted off and said, Quantum Leap is my Back to the Future on TV. Awesome. So that's it. Enough of me here. No, not never enough of you. I don't think you mentioned all the shows you do do. Uh, you, you left a couple out. I, yeah, okay. Well, I again, I didn't want it to turn into something about me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a guest here, but if you insist, uh, you know, I mentioned the Back to the Future, the animated series podcast, which I do with you. Um, the My movie review podcast, Hydrate Level 4, I review the movies I, I grew up watching. I watch the movies and basically see if they still hold up, you know, if I still enjoy it as an adult. And another movie review podcast I do is called Original Remake, where my co-host and I, we review and compare a film and its remake or the original movie it's based on. Uh, and the other one I do, uh, We Got Five, that one is a list show. So we pick a topic and we just run down our top fives every episode. Now, that one right there is probably the most explicit. So <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. A lot of bit, I would say, actually. And that one may not be something for work. Uh, but if you listen during work, use earbuds. 
So I sent feedback into that show not too long ago. It was your uh, Disney movie list? Yes, you did, and I forgot to read it. Yes, you did, and I, I, I listened to the episode twice, <laughs> and I'm like, really? He forgot about me? I'm sorry, you know, and you didn't mention anything, so I was like, maybe he didn't listen to it. No, I but listened. I keep forgetting because it was on my phone. Like, all the uh, other feedbacks are on the computer. It's all right. So, You're, that's what makes you sassy. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, but to be fair, I will remedy that, and it will be read um, <laughs> on the next episode. So what is the show we're on now? This is the Back to the uh, Future show? No, this is yes. Quantum Leap, right? Quantum Leap. Okay. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's uh, Sam Beckett and Doc Brown or something like that. Oh, that's how we got there. But anyway, coming up next, we get to hear about old radios in Quantum Leap from my friend and quite a handsome dude, a smart guy, Christopher D. Philippus. I'm Christopher D. Philippus, and it's time for the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings, where I tell you about all the vintage radios that appear on Quantum Leap. We've arrived at Miss Deep South, and hold on to your ear bobs because this episode does, in fact, feature a radio. A 1962 Bulova 190 clock radio, to be exact, seen in Clint Beaumont's hotel room for about two and a half seconds as Sam Dex, the photographer. The Bulova 190 is a beautiful set, a rectangular tabletop with its front split into two square halves. The left half is dominated by a metallic gold clock face with a thick white border featuring bold silver numbers. The right half boasts a metallic gold sheet with a raised square pattern and a pair of lower right volume and tuning knobs. The cabinet is topped by five push buttons set above the clock, used for different radio and clock functions. The whole thing gives off a 60s modern industrial chic vibe, very madman, very masculine. And if that's not enough, here's where it gets interesting, or I get a little crazy. Either way, strap in. The 190 seen on screen is clearly in a two-tone black and white cabinet, but the Bulova 190 only came in solid black, blue, pink, or white. So, what gives? After some digging, I discovered that the 190's predecessor, the Bulova 180 clock radio, did come in a two-tone black and white cabinet. What's more, the cabinets for the 180's and the 190's appear to be identical. Only the fronts of the radios are different. So, here's what I think happened. Somewhere along the way, a radio restorer had a good 180 cabinet and a good 190 chassis and decided to combine them to make one complete radio. Or the original owner of the 180 got a 190 and decided that the old black and white cabinet went better with their decor and swapped out the chassis themselves. Or I'm completely overthinking this and some set decorator decided to paint the back of the bland 190 cabinet so it would pop more on camera. But according to my friends on the Antique Radio Forum, Repaired literature for the Bulova 190 says that it is very similar to the 180, so my cabinet-swapping scenario is at least plausible. But, mashup or not, the Bulova 190 came out in 1962, which makes it anachronistic to Sam's leap date of 1958. Anachronism aside, I found another interesting tidbit about the Bulova 190. It was probably manufactured about 40 miles from my house here on Long Island, in a bull of a factory that used to be in Valley Stream, on the Nassau-Queens border. That factory is long gone. There's a Walmart there now. But I find it fascinating that a radio that originated here in the 1960s was called into service in L.A. in the 1990s to appear in a show set in the 50s. Radios are time machines. And you can see this bull of a and all the other time machines that have appeared on Quantum Leap 
on the Quantum Leap Radio Sighting section of my website at deflipside.com. That's D-E-F-L-I-P-S-I-D-E.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap Podcast link and look for the radio dial. And with that, this is your Quantum Leap Radio Guru, tuning out. Thank you, Christopher, for that. And not only is he a handsome man, he has a great voice as well. A handsome man, great voice, very intelligent, and... Uh, Quite the catch. I consider him a friend. Sure. I probably call him as much as I call you, Peter. <laughs> well, that, that's a lot. <laughs> you, guys, you guys should call each other and commiserate about how much I call you. Wait, I got him on speed dial. Oh, perfect. So what do we have next? In the next episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, we are talking about the somewhat controversial but very important and still topical episode written by the great, the one and only Deborah Pratt, Black on White on Fire. I know she doesn't know me, but I just want to tell her I love her. <laughs> Can I do that? <laughs> I'll let her know. Clearly, I'm a big fan. So. She's she's amazing, and I've said it again and again. She's uh, I'm a big fan, and I'm so happy that she exists. Let's yeah, put it and that this way. this is a great episode too. Colors shouldn't have anything to do with relationships, and no one should know that better than us. You've been sucking up to this white trash so long, you start to sound like him. He sounds like the future. Not my future. I asked you to stay away from my daughter, now I'm telling you. Stop it, Daddy. Not while you're under my roof. Negroes and whites are getting married all the time. It doesn't matter anymore. It does to me. Are you starting to fall in love with just Susan? No. It's just that even though I've only been here a few hours, I can see how much she loves Ray. She wouldn't let anything come between them. The Watts riots were not just anything, Sam. Well, shut up and listen. What is your problem, man? The streets are swarming with cops, man. They're arresting brothers for just walking down the street. For what? For what? Does it matter? Does it ever matter? Lonnie, don't start this. Start what, man? Are we going to let a bunch of honky cops stomp us into the ground, man, because we're fighting back for once? we got to take back our streets. So next time on the Quantum Leap podcast, we'll be talking about black on white on fire, or as Netflix calls it. Black and white on fire. Who did that? Was it a virtual assistant? Really? I don't hey, know. Was what it, are you making it sound bad for? Did, did they hire that work out to just put that on there? How, do, how, how could they get that wrong? I don't know. It's going to be a great episode. It's written by Deborah Pratt. And I'm so excited. That means it's going to be good no matter what. So yeah, I've no, I we didn't even I like I didn't really watch a preview for it other than the leap in. So I don't know. I don't know anything except Sam wakes up on like a mattress on the road or something pillow. Something. I always thought there was a roof. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I saw. Yeah, it was like 15 seconds, 15, 15 seconds, seconds of it. So I'm not really sure where they are. But yeah, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I, but I remember enjoying it. But it's better than you're going to cry and this is going to be the best episode ever. Oh, you didn't cry. I don't think that's really a spoiler because Deborah Pratt wrote it. So, yeah, I pretty much think that she's amazing. So anything that she does, I'm totally a fan of. So I'm excited. And that's next time on the Quantum Leap podcast. But for now, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And I'm Peter. And this is Tommy Tops. Always remember, step and glide, step and glide. Step and glide.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Albie and Heather, with contributions from Hayden McQueenie, Suzanne Smiley, and Christopher DeFilippis. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Juan Muro, with voice talent provided by Juan Muro, Hayden McQueenie, Suzanne Smiley, Christopher DeFilippis, and Peter Vonasak. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Barren Space production. And he says, quote, as in, and his note says, quote, hap, mm, and his note says, quote, hap, mm, ooh, and, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, your friend, in t- that was a Canadian, sorry, sorry, that it was again, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they're free flowing, oh gosh, I don't know what it is. I'm not, I'm not good at this, Albie. You're doing great. Uh, okay. Um. <laughs> You're really not going to tell me what just happened. I don't know about you, but I am starving. 